to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hello, que pasa, mi amigos. What is going on? Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Bonjour. Comment allez-vous? Très bien. Merci. Et vous-même? Konnichiwa. What is happening? What is going on? A lot of things to discuss today in the world, in the world of sports. I hope everybody is doing well. I hope everybody is practicing peace. I hope everybody is practicing unity. I hope everybody is practicing love with your brothers and your sisters and everyone else in between, your lovers, your fighters, your enemies, your friends. Peace, love, unity, togetherness, understanding, education, listening, learning is what we're all about here. The civil rights movement, the modern day civil rights movement continues, not just going on in the world of sports, but also in the world today. So, Today on the podcast, professional sports, sports figures in this modern day civil rights movement continuing to adjust to the new ways of life and dealing with the coronavirus for the near future and continued awakening of the society and country towards the treatment and then understanding the relationship building with the black and brown communities as a whole. So far going well, so far on target, so far I'm impressed, so far I'm hopeful, so far so good. We don't know what's going to happen as the summertime gets a little bit warmer, as the COVID starts to write its own definitions of what we take from that, what's going to be happening when sports comes back, if they do come back, in some cases, maybe not. So all those things we'll be discussing in terms of what we're going to be doing to move the needle in terms of how we relate in the world of sports, how we relate to each other, all of those good things. Here's also what I'm going to take a look at, you know. We've been talking about professional sports. We've been talking about what LeBron James is doing. And we've been talking about the absence of the owners in the National Football League and the whole Colin Kaepernick situation. And are we going to kneel? Are we not going to kneel? Everything's been really surrounded mostly, mostly by what's happening in the pro sports. But we really haven't had a chance to talk about the impact, the protests for equality and true freedom for black and brown people. What it's going to mean for the college coaches. In the money generating sports. What about the Nick Sabins of the world and the Dabo Sweeney's of the world and the Tom Izzo's of the world and the Patrick Ewing's of the world and the uh, Mickey Cronin's of the world and all of those coaches out there of, uh, of any substance, of any circumstance, of, of any influence. When we're talking about coaches in the SEC as far as the football is concerned, when we're talking about Tom Herman in Texas, when we're talking about Lincoln Riley in Oklahoma, these coaches who wield so much power, who wield so much influence who have so much sway in what could be happening. What's going to be going on with them? How are they going to adjust? Are they going to adjust? We're talking about, you know, the coaches in the money-generating sports like football and basketball and baseball and wrestling and softball. How are these coaches are going to adjust? And what, if any, adjustments or challenges will the elite coaches have to face to remain at the level that they're going to be at? Now, how are we going to differentiate the coaches in terms of those who are in the Power Six conferences for basketball or the Power Five conferences for football, how are we, how are we going to differentiate those who are actually genuine in their support 
and then they're trying to understand and learn and be educated about what black folks go through on an everyday basis, how many of those coaches are going to be sincere in their efforts to try to get to learn more so they can grow and so they can become better people, better human beings, better uh, people that God created? And how many of those are just going to be doing it so they can save their job, that they're going to be insincere? I know the answer to that, that question might be, well, you know, actions will speak louder than words. So, Time will tell in terms of maybe weeding out those who we might have some suspicions about, well, the reason why he's talking about Black Lives Matter and all these type of things is because he wants to go ahead and save his job so he can continue to have black ball players from the inner city or for whoever the country can go in and play football for him or go play baseball for him or go play basketball for him. And, you know, the coaches who are for real, the coaches who are genuine in their interest and trying to connect more with their players on a personal level concerning race and relations and that type of thing, we'll know. We'll know the difference. But it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting time to really go ahead and take a look at that during these times of needs, man. When we're talking about today's coaches, I was thinking about this the other day, man, and I was just thinking, you know, damn, wouldn't it be nice right now? What 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 we're going through. And when we're speaking about the young folks of the world going to college and those who are participating in athletics and we see, see with these guys, the college athletes having to deal with, with social media and, and camera phones and TMZ and college sports has become a billion dollar entity. So these players now have become much more, as we say, shall we say, public figures in their region, in their community, in their state, in their hometown, in their city. During these times when there's so much shit like that is going on, man, I wish we had more modern day coaches that were cut from the same cloth as say, uh, Eddie Robinson from Grambling or John Chaney from, from Temple or John Thompson Jr., the great big John from Georgetown University, even Joe Paterno. Yes, I know a whole, I know the whole Jerry Sandusky thing, but still someone like a Joe Paterno or a John Wooden or a John Gilliari, the, uh, Division three coach over in Minnesota who was always talking about and preaching about, you know what, building relationships. Just call me John. Don't call me coach or anything like that. Building those relationships, those teaching moments. Really, these guys coming into the, these campuses, coming onto these college campuses as boys, no matter where they're from, whether they're from Appalachia, whether they're from the trailer parks, whether they're from the inner city, whether they're from the upper crust of this country, coming in as boys and leaving as men after three or four years, even after two years, as you're speaking about college basketball. I mean, I sure wish during these times and during this time of revelation, we had more of those type of coaches instead of having to deal with the Sean Millers and the Art Briles and the Bobby Petrinos and the Will Wades of the world. You know what I'm saying? I just wish that we could, you know, kind of go and move back to those times back in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. John Wooden had to deal with it, of course, when he was with UCLA. And he had to deal with Bill Walton when he was out there protesting and doing his thing. I mean, we're talking about a, a coach like a John McLennan and some of these big game, you know, coaches in the uh, HBCU um, territories as far as their, their, those college coaches and what they were dealing with. It was, I just sure wish we, I sure wish I had, or we were having coaches that, had that type of mentality in terms of, you know what, I'm a teacher first, not a celebrity first, not a guy who needs to win 25 games to keep their job, not a guy who needs to win the Big 12 Conference Championship in order to keep his job. I just kind of wish we kind of went to a more naive, innocent type of time when coaches could worry about, again, seeing what they could do to make an impact on, on young people's lives and not have to worry so much about how many seats you're going to fill for the stadium, how much money you're going to make for the program, and how many games you have to win to keep your job. 
as I've always said before when I used this example, I'll always go back to the University of Notre Dame, the president, when Ty Willingham was fired. He said that, you know what, from Sunday through Friday, Ty Willingham was awesome. Ty Willingham was fantastic. Ty Willingham was just a beautiful representation of what Notre Dame student athletes and their faculty and their coaches, staff, and what the true meaning of what um, sports and student athletes and that mixture was all about. Ty Willingham was above reproach. Unfortunately, he didn't win enough. So everything that he did Sunday through Friday concerning building young men's lives and those type of things didn't take center stage in terms of saving his job because he didn't win enough. I sure wish there was a time, and of course money dictates everything and passion for these schools dictate everything and fan bases and donors and all those type of money issues are the main thing that goes into a coach keeping his job and such. But I just wish that coaches could be graded a little bit more. I wish coaches could be uh, more acclaimed or just a little bit more acclaimed for the team's GPA or for their graduation rate more than their NCAA appearances and, 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 um, and how many wins and how many bowl games you go to. But, you know, like I said, Pollyannic, that's more of a pipe dream that, that horse is out the barn and that's not coming back. So I'll get into that a little bit later on in the podcast. Also going to be discussing Major League Baseball. Goodness gracious. Latest update on the Major League Baseball negotiations. <laughs> Another opportunity missed for baseball to be part and make a bigger impact on something than more than just sports. We know about the impasse. We know about the season being in jeopardy in terms of it having a real season. Worst comes to worst, I'm quite sure that baseball will play 48 or 50 games or something like that. But again, as this country is in turmoil, as this country is making moves, as this country is writing in the history books of what's going on, and we see the impact that the athletes are making, we see the presence that's being felt, we see some of the things that we're doing, that they're doing, whether we're talking about football or, or basketball, NASCAR, we'll get into that, other things. America's pastime, baseball, what's going on? What's happening? Who's speaking out? Who's demonstrating? Who's marching with the protesters? Who's doing something? To let them know that baseball is in the game in terms of trying to be a, be a difference maker, trying to be somewhat of a positive force for change. What in the world of Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby is going on with that? Oscar Charlton and the Negro Leagues and those guys must be rolling in their graves talking about, man, unbelievable what baseball has become. We expect less for boxing right now. Because boxing, ever since what Mike Tyson, there really hasn't been a heavyweight. There really hasn't been that guy in terms of boxing to be out there, to be a force, to be a public figure, to be a guy of reckoning in terms of what he thinks, what he says, his deeds and his actions. Really, since Tyson, there really hasn't been anybody. Maybe, possibly, arguably, maybe Holyfield, maybe, but not really. He really didn't capture the attention like Iron Mike Tyson did and still does. But now when you take a look at the weak heavyweights that's gone through the ranks since Tyson left, and I mean weak in terms of their impact that they have on society, whether it's the Klitschko brothers or now Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder and moving forward, that's just a shame that boxing, the home of Jack Johnson, the home of Joe Lewis, the home of, you know, boxers when they were the heavyweight champion of the world meant something. I mean, there were race riots. July 4th coming up, 1910, when Jack Johnson beat the great white hope, Jim Jeffries, that kind of cement the fact that a black man is the best fighter in the world, is the most powerful man in the world, because he had that championship belt around his, around his waist. People were rioting in the streets. There was a pseudo-civil war going on, a race war going on. 
people, black people, white people died because of Jim, uh, Jim Jeffries, the great white hope, losing a boxing match. That's the symbol, that used to be the symbol of what the heavyweight champion was about. White folks lost their mind. Black folks lost their mind when Jack Johnson, the black man who won the heavyweight championship, would be up there corroding and dating and sleeping and marrying white women. I mean, they'd all gone to Man Act with something in terms of what they had to use and kind of flex and stretch it out to a way to get Jack Johnson. Joe Lewis, we saw the... The, the presence, we saw the impact that Joe Lewis had in terms of him being the heavyweight champion of the world. Muhammad Ali, of course, the impact that he had being the heavyweight champion of the world. Now the heavyweight champion, Tyson Fury, seems like a guy who wants to do something with the belt. He wants to do something with the stature of being the heavyweight champion of the world. But as far as what's going on right now, we really don't need him. And I don't know where exactly... Could he go due to the fact that he's not American and even though he's white, I mean, I don't know how much of an impact he would have compared to some of the baseball players or some of the American white baseball players or football players or the three American basketball, white basketball players who are in the league. I'm kidding. But I mean, my, my point is the fact that the heavyweight champion has really fallen off in terms of its impact on society, which I've stated before in several uh, podcasts before, but baseball is marching toward that just that level of, of relevancy, which is very little. While these guys fight and they bicker, and look, business is business. I get it. You know, owners got to do their business. Baseball players, the, the union, they have to do their business. It's not my money. It's not my livelihood. I get it. And baseball is nothing more than really a form of entertainment when you get right down to it. And these players should be compensated and the owners should be fair with the with the players and the players should be fair with the owners. So it's a matter of you go ahead and you work yourself out and you get everything straightened out. But in the meantime, would you please take a look at the optics of what's going on? Baseball's not going away. Baseball made $11 billion last year. Even if baseball doesn't get played this season, baseball in two or three or four years is going to get fine. And you could talk about Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and Cal Ripken Jr. And those guys saved the sport. In uh, 1998 and 1995, after the players struck in 1994, there's always something coming around the bend that'll capture the American's public in terms of baseball concern to bring them back from the depths of despair, the depths of where they are right now in terms of the public relations and the attitude that baseball fans, sports fans have with the game right now. But just as of right now, man, it's just, it's a bad look. It's really a bad look for baseball all the way around. And maybe, maybe some of these players would have a little bit more sympathy from the fans if they did show themselves out there in terms of trying to make a difference or at least voicing their, um, voicing their support for Black Lives Matter and talking about equality for all races and black people and being down with the unity and togetherness and such. Maybe if they were more present out there, maybe if we saw their faces out there doing something more often, that maybe for these labor negotiations, that maybe the players would have something to stand on. And maybe because of that, maybe because of what they're doing out on the streets with the protesting and the trying to bring people together, it would maybe force the owners to maybe give them a deal that they might find more copacetic. But as of right now, they're doing nothing. They're doing neither. And again, another missed opportunity for baseball, which I'll be discussing a little bit more as we go on in the podcast here on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace. Wendell Wallace. Also want to get to the NBA. 
Is the resumption of the NBA season in jeopardy? I'm not talking about Alex Trebek, y'all. I'm talking about jeopardy. Answer, NBA season will not be played today. Uh, Bill, what is, what the fuck's going on? That is correct. Some players are starting to get a little bit more information. The devil's in the details, as we say, about what's going on and what's it going to be like living in the conditions that are proposed by the league. And some of these players are going, wait a second, now hold on for a minute. We're going to have to be dealing with this for how many weeks, for how many months? I mean, we're going to be stuck in this bubble. We're going to be doing this type of stuff. Uh, I don't know. And you also have to take into account how much of what's going on in terms of the players having second thoughts or the players maybe humming about humming and hawing about going ahead and doing this, how much of what's going on in the streets concerning this generation's civil rights movement is affecting the desire for players to resume the season? I've heard Steven Jackson came out and said, you know what, because of what happened with George Floyd, I don't think that the NBA season should go on. I think that there's other bigger things to be that's going on in the world right now that needs the players' attention. So maybe this is a situation where we need to, you know, put the season on ice and come back when everything is cooler, when everything is more copacetic, when hopefully praying, begging, pleading that we have an actual leader or an actual person who has some competency, who has some morality, who has a heart, who has a brain, who has some character, put somebody in the White House other than the piece of shit that we have right now. Maybe until those things are taken care of, that basketball should be kind of shelved and we can concentrate on more important things and we can use the voices of Steph Curry and LeBron James and Russell Westbrooks and Lonnie Walkers and Gordon Haywards and all these other guys who have been out speaking out and speaking about their their quest for unity and for togetherness. So I'll get into that also. So there's a lot of things to get into here in Wendell's world of sports. Are we going to keep this podcast over four hours? I said, are we going to keep this podcast over four hours? Let me hear you. You got to tune in to find out. Give me some music. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I hope everybody is well. I hope everybody is doing what they need to do to move this country, to move the society in a better place. Let's keep it going. Let's keep the momentum going because our work concerning police brutality, our work as far as police messing with our civil rights, our work in terms of bringing unity and harmony and understanding and education for those who have been oppressing us for century needs to be continued. Let's continue to do what we're doing. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. One group of folks, one sport that is making a strong, strong statement. Who would have thunk? NASCAR? We're no strangers to moving fast. And we know how life can have that same quality. But now? But now? But now is the time to slow down and reflect. The events of recent weeks highlighted the work we still need to do as a nation to condemn racial inequality and racism. 
the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and countless others in the black community are heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Are heartbreaking and can no longer be ignored. The process begins with us listening and learning because understanding the problem is the first step in fixing it. We are committed to listening with empathy and with an open heart to better educate ourselves. We will use this education to advocate for change in our nation, our communities, and most importantly, in our own homes. Even after the headlines go away. All of our voices, they make a difference. No matter how big or how small, it is all of our responsibility to no longer be silent. To no longer be silent. We just can't stay silent. We have a long road ahead of us, but let's commit to make that journey together. 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 Our differences should not divide us. It is our love for all mankind that will unite us as we work together to make real change. To make real change. As we work together to make real change. Awesome, fellas. Awesome. Fantastic. Bravo. And everything else in between. The biggest statement made from any sport regarding its sincerity to help heal and improve this community has been NASCAR. And they said on Wednesday that it's banning the display of the Confederate flag and all of the its events and properties. Also, Wednesday, NASCAR removed this rule mandating that racing team members stand for the national anthem. Uh, in a prepared statement from NASCAR that was issued before its race last Wednesday night at Martinsville Speedway in Virginia, uh, it was said that the presence of the Confederate flag at NASCAR events run contrary to our commitment to providing a welcoming and inclusive environment for all fans, our competitors, and our industry. Bringing people together around a love for racing and the community that it creates is what makes our fans and sports special. The display of the Confederate flag will be prohibited from all NASCAR events and property. Now, Bubba Wallace, the only full-time black uh, driver on the NASCAR circuit, he wore a shirt bearing the words Can't Breathe, Black Lives Matter before a race in Atlanta. And I gotta admit, man, I've not been, cause I'm not, you know, really huge on NASCAR. I gotta admit, really haven't watched a race. You know, I remember years ago, there was a event out here in Las, in uh, Las Vegas and the station that I was working for at the time. So we're talking about maybe eight, nine, ten years ago was talking about we need to go out and we need to support. And I said, man, I ain't going to be going to no damn racetrack with about 100,000 people to watch a bunch of cars go around in a circle. No thanks. Hey, guys are great drivers. If those guys can make a, make a bunch of money doing it and have a lot of people, you know, say hip, hip, hooray, and you're my guy and all this type of the other, if you can make a living doing that, by all means, man, go, 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 go. But for me, I just, it just ain't happening. So I really didn't know anything about Bubba Wallace. I had no idea. I knew he had a great last name. And I knew with a last name like, like Wallace, he had to be smart. He had to be intelligent. He had to be good looking. He had to be sophisticated. He had to be articulate. I mean, you know, which Wallace isn't, which doesn't have brown skin. So I just kind of th said to myself, okay, how about that Bubba Wallace? I mean, good luck to you. I heard of him along with Tony Stewart and Jimmy Johnson and the Bushes and all those guys. It's like, you know, go for it, man. Jeff Gordon, go for it, man. You know, make your money, make your fame, you know, have that impact on your society if you can, doing what you're doing. Fantastic. I mean, I ain't going to be there with you, but I wish you all nothing but the best of luck and do what you got to do and all those good things. But, you know, Bubba Wallace, I, black guy, number one. All right. Well, hold on. I'm just halfway interested here. Then he's talking about wearing the shirt, talking about I can't breathe. Black lives matter at a NASCAR event in Martinsville, Virginia. Say what? <laughs> so as I mentioned before, 
they've been trying to eliminate the inclusion of the flag for years. I didn't know Dale Earnhardt Jr., who, you know, seemed to be a real cool guy, a real good guy, a guy who I'd like to hang out with a little bit. You know, if the situation presented itself, I'm quite sure it'd be fun. He seemed like a really great guy from the outside looking in. He was like, he's been trying to get rid of that thing for years. And Dale Earnhardt Jr., man, I mean, that's a guy who has a strong, 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 strong following and is one of the few drivers who kind of step above outside of the NASCAR bubble. Hence, I know who he is. And hence, I like the guy. And hence, he seemed to be a really genuine, nice guy. And I like to hear what he had to say about things. So I didn't know, but I didn't know for years he was trying to uh, get rid of, or he was one of the NASCAR drivers that was trying to eliminate the flag from uh, speedways and those type of things. So that, that's great, man. That's great. But getting back to Bubba Wallace, his comments and reactions were interesting. When he heard the ban was official and what was the immediate reaction in terms of when people were talking about, because now I heard that Bubba Wallace is one of the stars of NASCAR. So when this went down, it was interesting first to hear his reaction in terms of, you know, what him finding out the news, but also what the reaction had been from fans that they've been trying to hook up with him or try to give him their opinions to him on social media. With Don Lemon of CNN, this is what he said. Yeah, I was actually on my way up. Uh to, to Martinsville, to the, to the speedway there. Um, it's about, uh, I don't know, about two o'clock. And Steve Phelps, president, called me and he was like, Hey, man, just want to let you know we're about to announce that uh, we're, we're going to ban the um, Confederate flags. And I was like, All right, awesome. Congratulations. This was a move that needed to happen a while ago for sure. But uh, I was proud of the efforts by NASCAR. So hats off to them. We've had some great leadership over the last couple of years to, uh, to be able to kind of start getting some things moving. Oh, you're getting both sides of it. Um, You're getting a lot of positive outreach, a lot of positive impact and gaining new fans as we go. Um, And then you're getting the fans that will never watch a NASCAR race again. The same fans that never watched NFL after the kneeling, the same fans that are crying out um, that were ruining their lives and just throwing a pity party as to whether accepting change and understanding why we need this change and why it's such a pivotal moment for our country. Um, I heard the conversations you were talking with the mayor there of, of to Houston and, and, uh, and it's like, you know, it, it's on a global level that this, this is an impact. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the change. I wish fans could come back um, ASAP just so we could see the, the demographic, and, and who shows up, what shows up, everybody who shows up. I want to just want to see and hear what they have to say. But through social media, you're getting both sides of the story. But there's obviously more good than there is bad. So I'm excited about it. So he said he was going to Martinsville, getting ready for the race when he got a call from Steve Phelps uh, to inform him that they were going to ban the flag. And he was happy about that. He praised the leadership of NASCAR to get this done. And when he was talking about the immediate backlash, or should I say blacklash, from the fans, he said on both sides, you know, there was discuss- discussion about, hey, this is great. And the other part about this is horrible. This is terrible. And you're a horrible human being. But the fact that he said that he had gotten more responses of positivity, the negativity, that's great, man. Way to go, Bubba. Bubba, that's awesome. So I was thinking about this, man. And I was thinking about this on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace. I was thinking to myself, man, Bubba Wallace, when the history books are written, 
in 40 or 50 years when the kids in high school and elementary school and middle school hopefully are talking about the second civil rights movement, the civil rights movement of our time here in 2020. Where, if anywhere, does Bubba Wallace go down in all of this? Because people are going to talk about the heroes from baseball. And, well, I'm sorry, baseball's good by that time. Probably will be so irrelevant. And the way that baseball's going right now, there really isn't going to be anybody to be mentioning in terms of their impact that they had on this movement 40, 50 years from now. So I shouldn't say Americans' former pastime baseball. But when we take a look and we talk about the demonstrations and we talk about the college athletes and what they did and we talk about the NFL athletes and we talk about the coaches in the NFL and we talk about the NBA players and, of course, we talk about LeBron and all those soon-to-be historical figures if they continue the way that they're going in terms of advocacy for the equation of and the inclusion that everybody I'm thinking to myself, when everything is all said and done with this, and we continue to move on in the year 2054, where exactly is Bubba Wallace going to be in all this? And maybe not just in Virginia, maybe not just in South Carolina, maybe not just, you know, in the southern states, but I'm just talking about in terms of a historical figure. Historical means worldwide. Where is Bubba Wallace going to sit? I'm telling you right now, what he did, as far as NASCAR is concerned, what he did, as far as the stand that he's taking, as far as what he did, in terms of the impact that he had, the difference that he's trying to make. Bubba Wallace is for NASCAR. He's the modern-day Jackie Robinson, Joe Lewis, Althea Gibson, Jesse Owens, Bill Russell, Jim Brown. He's all those guys for NASCAR. He's taking the torch. Speaking of Bubba Wallace, he's taking the torch from pioneers in the sport like Wendell Scott, who was the first black driver in NASCAR. What's up with NASCAR when you get a Wendell and you got a Wallace? You put them together, you got Wendell's world in sports. No, I'm just joking. But he's taking a torch from pioneers such like Wendell Scott, who was the first black driver in NASCAR, Rajo Jack, Billy Lester, uh, Willie Grigg, really, really uh, ribs, excuse me, and, and Charlie Wiggins, and making them proud, man. He's doing what he's doing, if you really think about it. If you really think about what the culture, the stereotypical culture of NASCAR is, how non-inclusive it is or has been and really continues to be up until 2020. We don't know. I don't know what's going to be happening in the future in terms of race car, NASCAR diversifying themselves to bring in more uh, drivers and pit crew men and of, of color and different nationalities and stuff. But when you're thinking about everything that Bubba Wallace is doing, man, to make the change in NASCAR, he's more courageous than any other athlete or prominent figure of importance today, if you think about it. Really, I'm talking about Bubba Wallace, what he's doing. He's showing more courage than LeBron James, than President, than still my President Barack Obama. He's having more courage. He's showing more courage than actors, singers, politicians, anyone else in between. Name an athlete. Name a prominent person out there who's speaking out on this. I'll tell you that what Bubba Wallace is doing is far more courageous. Because you're talking about Bubba Wallace doing this in a sport like NASCAR, where the fan base has been extraordinarily strong and passionate and misguided in his thoughts about what the flag, what that flag stands for. As, you know, many people have talked about before, mainly on the black hand side, they've been talking about before, look, you know, the marching and the protesting and the talking about racism is bad and police brutality is bad. I mean, all that is well well and good. I mean, it's, it, it, I don't think any any athlete 
or any actor or anybody of importance, anybody of his, of a political figure is really putting themselves out there to say, guess what, y'all? You know what? Mm. Black folks shouldn't be murdered by police officers. Black people shouldn't have the civil liberties, civil liberties taken away by police officers. You know what? Racism and being oppressed, that's not a good deal. Black people shouldn't be oppressed. Black people shouldn't be discriminated against. Black people should have fair and equal treatment. It doesn't take that much right now that the climate that we're having to go ahead and say those things in marching and doing those type of things. I, I, I thank you for it. I appreciate that. I'm not saying that, you know, big fucking deal. No, 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 no. No, I'm, I'm taking a lot of the white folks out there who are talking about we need to do this and we need to do that. We need to get better. We need to learn and we need to understand. And we need to educate. I'm taking you guys at your word. Just like black folks who are saying, you know what? I'm willing, once again, to explain to you in terms of what we're going through on a daily basis and what we kind of need from you guys. And I'm, I'm going to take my community at its word that once again, we're going to try to explain and we're going to have patience because white folks aren't going to get it all at first, first bite. You no, know, uh, Hispanic folks aren't going to get it all in one fell swoop. You know, Asian folks aren't going to get it the first time around. You know, for black folks in the community, there's going to be instances where, you know, white folks and other folks are going to, from the other communities who might not have experienced these things are going to be sitting there going, well, hold on for a minute. Isn't that, well, didn't that police officer have, well, the reason why they didn't get the job or, well, because there's not too many black folks doing this, that, and the other, isn't because black folks we're going to have to be patient and explain. We can't say, oh, fuck y'all, then you'll never get it. And we, we, we can't walk away from the table. You know, we have to keep explaining and they keep explaining and they keep explaining. Women understand this. Uh, homosexuals understand this. Those of alternative lifestyles understand this. We have to keep educating. We have to keep going. No, remember this, that, and the other, this, that, and the other. And it's going to be a slow trog. White folks aren't going to see the light, you know, by the end of the month. Well, no, by the end of this week, white folks are going to be like, oh, yeah, now I get it. Now I'm down. Now no, it ain't going to be like that. So we're going to have to stand there and can communicate and be tough and do all those type of things. But getting back to Bubba Wallace, I mean, he's the only guy out there in that sport. I mean, LeBron has his whole NBA family behind him in terms of the black folks from his community or the black folks, you know, kind of helping him out on this crusade. Same with NFL football players. Same with a lot of these players in these other sports who are doing this, man. I mean, they've got their back. Bubba Wallace, the only black racer in the sport that's predominantly white, predominantly Southern, and the stereotype is predominantly racist and predominantly white privilege. He's up there taking the stand. That's some courage, man. Because he's the only one out there. I appreciate Every, uh, I appreciate all the erasers who are backing them up, who are down, who are this, that, and the other. That's cool. That's great. That's wonderful. Keep it up. But yet and still, when it comes back down to it, it's still about the one black driver. And when we're talking about that fan base, which is NASCAR, we're talking about messing with their Confederate flag. <gasps> oh, my goodness. And not having to stand at the national anthem. Oh, my goodness gracious. They're not going to be looking so much at Jimmy Johnson. They're not going to be looking so much at uh, Tony Stewart. They're not going to be looking so much at in disgust or shame or head scratching, head nodding, disgust. They're not going to be looking as much at those white drivers as they are Bubba Wallace because they're those who will not understand, those who are too ignorant, those who are too out of touch, those are too old school, those who are just too stupid to realize 
It's going to be about, oh, you know what? See what NASCAR is doing? Damn it. They're talking about political correctness. We don't want to offend anybody. I can't believe it. We're up here appeasing Bubba Wallace because he got his feelings hurt because of a Confederate flag. Well, we're proud of our Confederate flag. You know that bullshit. The Confederate flag is something that we're proud of. I'm down here in Alabama. I'm down here in South Carolina. I'm down here in North Carolina. That Confederate flag means something to us. It's our history, and I'm proud of it. Sweet home Alabama. I mean, you know, so you're, Bubba Wallace is going to have to be dealing with that bullshit. I mean, the NBA, I mean, how far south does the NBA really have to go? The NBA ain't going to Alabama. The NBA ain't going down to northern Florida. And the NBA ain't going to Mississippi. The NBA ain't going to Arkansas. Same with the NFL. There's no teams in, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. You know, there's no teams in Pensacola, Florida that the NFL had to go through and have to hear from the dumbass rednecks from the trailer parks talking about, you know, you guys are too lazy and you guys need to do this. And I can't believe LeBron James is talking about Black Lives Matter and black oppressed people. And he's up here making $100 million a year. What the fuck's he talking about? Michael Jordan never said anything like that. Tiger Woods never said anything about that. Derek Jeter never said anything about that. You know, back in the old days when the Green Bay Packers were winning championships, you know what was great? about Willie Davis and all those other guys who played for the Green Bay Packers. They were good old Negroes. They never stood up and they never spoke out about what's going on with the civil rights movement. They never were involved in any type of marches. They were never involved with any of the Malcolm X's and the Medgar Edwards and the Martin Luther King's, at least what we know of. So they were good Negroes. They kept their mouths shut and they just played football. You know, none of that. The athlete today is not having that. But luckily, the athlete today, the black athlete today, he has a whole bunch of brothers that he can rely on. LeBron James ain't going through this fight by himself in a league that's predominantly black. You know, when the black players in the NFL speak out, the predominance of black players in the NFL, I would guess, are black. Or at least there's enough to where, you know, he has a whole bunch of soldiers behind him ready to fight this war in terms of educating those who are ignorant about what we need to do to move forward as a society by treating black folks like they should be treated. In NASCAR, man, Bubba Wallace, he's the only one. And he ain't going to Los Angeles, California. He ain't going to Washington, D.C. He ain't going to New York City. He ain't going to any of them progressive type places. I mean, he's going, he's stuck there in down south and he's up there doing it. So for him, it's like the, the courage that that man has to do this is incredible. And he should be applauded. I mean, I don't know about the bullshit SBs or anything like that, but man, I think that he should be getting a lot more attention. I think that he should be getting a lot more praise and a lot more applause for what he's doing because it ain't easy. That took some conviction, man. That took some character. That took some stones to do what he had to do. And he's been doing that for years in a sport like NASCAR. Give it up for Bubba Wallace, man. Give it up for Bubba Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Wendell Wallace, which is so doggone glad that you could be with us. So the backlash from the decision, NASCAR's decision to go ahead and to um, ban the Confederate flag and the opportunity, if you like to, to kneel during the national anthem. So what had been the backlash or the backlash from this decision? Well, Jimmy Johnson and Bubba Wallace and Ryan Blaney, Blaney, and Kyle Busch, they severed ties with a racing helmet designer after the brand account lashed out online about NASCAR's decision 
to ban the Confederate flag at racing events. This is what was tweeted. It said, and of course, there wasn't any one person who took credit for this tweet, if you want to say taking credit, but it said in the tweet, the Confederate flag north and south in the Civil War, the Confederate flag north versus south in the Civil War, a war over separation of the Union, not slavery. But hey, ignorance wins again. NASCAR, do you realize the North has slaves too? LOL, not just the South. You want to remove the American flag as well, idiots? Well, let me tell you something, you fucking stupid motherfucker. Because the ignorance of this tweet is just laughable in itself, LOL. Let's talk about the Confederate flag. He was talking about this uh, one deal here. Um, what was it? Oh, yeah. The Confederate flag, North versus South, in the Civil War. A war over separation of the unit Union, not slavery. Let me give you a history lesson, you dumb son of a bitch. In 1850, the United States, when they acquired California, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, and Arizona through the Mexican-American War, you see, when they acquired those territories, the thought was, okay, now we've got these five new states, and we've got these five new territories. What exactly are they going to be? Are they going to be free states, or are they going to be slave states? Now, Zachary Taylor, who was the president at that time for 16 months until he killed over from a, um, an intestinal infection and then Mill Fillmore came in. But Zachary Taylor, back in the day when he was the 12th president of the United States, he said that A, California is going to be a free state. New Mexico is going to be a free state because the folks who live out there in New Mexico, they don't want slaves. There's been about 100,000 people in California. We're going to have them be a free state. And then New Mexico is going to be a, um, a free state also because the folks who are living in that territory don't want slaves. Well, the folks in the South who are falling farther behind because of the industry. Yes, the northern states at that time. I mean, they had textiles, they had buildings, they have other ways of manufacturing products and stuff. So because of that, there was more opportunity. Because of that, there were more things that the North was doing to help improve this country. You see, when the country first began, these United States of America, you didn't have the 50 states that we have right now. You had just your South Carolinas, and you had your Georgias, and you had your New Yorks, and you had your Marylands, and you had your Maines, and you had your Rhode Islands, and you had all of these Basically, the Northeast Corridor uh, at the time. So with the North and the South, yeah, they were pretty much equal because of the size of the country at that time. But then again, when the United States started to expand, you know, speaking about acquiring all these territories, again, the question came to, okay, are these going to be free states or are they going to be slave states? The slave owners in the slave states in the South wanted these guys to remain wanted these states to be slave states so they could keep their power within the North, which had their power. So that's where everything started. You're talking about the beginning of the Civil War. It had nothing to do, well, sure, it had something to do with the Union in terms of, you know, the equity of what, or the impact of what the Southern states could have on a Northern impact, but that was all based on slavery, you fucking stupid-ass motherfucker. So there you go. It ain't, you ever heard of the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, people living in that territory in those states would determine if they would be free or or it would be a slave state. At the time, the president, um, who was the president at that time? Hold on, hold on. Oh, yeah, the president at that time, Franklin Pierce, you know, when he was talking about, you know, when he was the president at that time, there was an issue about, again, moving forward. Would the states be free? Or would they be slave states? 
So Franklin Pierce at the time, who was too drunk, who was too much of an alcoholic to really give a damn. That's why he's one of the worst presidents who's ever been there. Him and James Buchanan, along with the idiot that we have right now in office and, and some others. He was kind of like, well, you know, I really don't want to do anything to see, you know, which state is going to be free, which state is going to be a slave state. So first come, first serve. So whoever decides in the territory amongst the people, whoever, they, whoever, whatever they decide, that's what it's going to be. Well, for two years during that time, you had civil war breaking up between those who wanted Kansas and Nebraska to be a slave state and for those who wanted that territory to be free. And Franklin Pierce did nothing. And James Buchanan, the Dred Scott decision, look it up. Well, they were talking about Dred Scott wanted his freedom from uh, his master and the civil rights order. Sorry, the Supreme Court said, no, sorry, that's not the way it goes. You guys, are, you know, black people are nothing more than property. You are not human beings. So Dred Scott was not granted his rights, even though he was no longer living with his master in the North. And James Buchanan did nothing about it, which again started the whole situation and the whole development of whether this country is going to be a free country or whether this country is going to be full of slaves, that was the deal. So when Abraham Lincoln came around in 1861 and he won the presidency without one southern state voting for him or, or him getting the majority of votes from the southern states, South Carolina, Jefferson Davis and all them guys said, man, fuck this, we're out of here. So everything was based on slavery. Everything was based on one group of people owning another group of people. And it was about power, and it was about territory, and it was about all those things, but it was also about these territories, what they're going to be. Are we still going to be able to own people of different colors and backgrounds, or are we going to be a free state? Bullshit about that, it had nothing to do with slavery. Who in the fuck did you get your history degree from, you dumb motherfucker? The Gry? What did you take your history lesson from? Talladega Tech University? Unfucking believable. So that's the type of ignorance that Bubba Wallace and those guys are going to be dealing with. Ray Cicerelli, do you hear this guy? You hear about what happened with him? I'll tell you what happened to him on Wendell's World of Sports Podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace. Hello. Ray Cicerelli, age 50, a part-time driver of the NASCAR Garner Gander RV and Outdoor Truck Series. He said this in a Facebook post. That he would not return for the, he would not return after the 2020 racing season is over. Oh my goodness gracious, stop the press. He said, and I quote in this post, he said, well, it's been a fun ride and dream come true, but if this is the direction NASCAR is headed, we will not participate after 2020 season is over. I don't believe in kneeling during anthem nor taking people's right to fly whatever flag they love. I could care less about the Confederate flag, but there are people that do, and it doesn't make them a racist. All of you, all you are doing is fucking one group to cater to another, and it, and I ain't spend the money we are to participate in any political bullshit. So everything is for sale. Now that post has since been deleted, and neither Cicerelli nor his team, CMI Motorsports, responded to a request for a comment from CNN. So it's nice to see that this guy, not only is he incredibly stupid in this area, he's also a coward. And the company's Twitter account was deleted sometime between Wednesday and Thursday afternoon. So I'm taking a look at this post. I could care less about the Confederate flag, but there are people that do, and it doesn't make them racist. Those who care about the Confederate flag right now, 
after everything that's gone down. They're ignorant and unaware of history of others and privileged at the very best. And that, and that worse, they're racist. So for those who are still sitting there talking about the Confederate flag, the Confederate, Confederate flag and still, you know, championing and still whining about how that should be flown freely and proudly, you're either completely ignorant in the subject of oppression and racism, or you're just racist yourself, which makes you ignorant and stupid in that area. So that's one thing. So he goes, all you're doing is fucking one group to cater to another. So which is, so, when you're talking about that, Raven, all you're doing is fucking one group to cater to another. Isn't that what you're doing as far as fucking one group to cater to another? Isn't that what you're doing when you're flying the Confederate flag? Aren't you catering to one group of people who are ignorant in the history of that flag and the privilege that it provides for them? The idiots and the racists? Aren't you catering to those folks and not catering to those of decency? So when you're talking about, I'd rather cater to those who have a brain. I'd rather cater to those who want to have inclusion. I want to cater to those who have the capacity to love and to learn and to unify. That's, that's who I want to cater to, right? Now, obviously, you still want to cater to a bunch of fucking morons who think that the Confederate flag is a hunky-dory way to go. We should have this going down. Now, if you want to go ahead and be on that side of history, Ray, your dumbass, go ahead and do it. But I'm kind of glad that, you know, NASCAR are, is starting to say, you know what, we, we don't want those folks at our speedway. We don't want those folks. You know, we can, we're going to try to build our brand. We're going to try to build our, our industry, our, our, our sports league, whatever, a different way. And we're going to try to do it with a more inclusive, harmonious type of uh, attitude. So I don't, I don't understand what's going on with that with Ray, but you know, hey, Glad to see him. You didn't win a race there, Ray. So you know what? You want to go ahead and take your stuff and go home and go somewhere else? I don't give a fuck. I don't think anybody else really gives a fuck either. So again, I'm glad to see NASCAR is catering to a group of people more intelligent in the history of that flag and more tolerant and willing to change for the betterment of society. Thank you. Thank you, NASCAR. Thank you, NASCAR. Thank you, Bubba. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. How about this? IndyCar fired flagman Brad, Brad Hockaday on Thursday after he made a post criticizing NASCAR support for social injustice policies. Of course, that's been deleted. Hey, you know, I gotta, you know what? All you, all you, you know, closet racists or ignorant folks who want to do these things, could you at least have the guts to keep it up there? Could you at least have the courage? Could you at least have the balls? Could you at least have the conviction in your ignorance and your stupidity and your unawareness of your tone deaf, of your privilege? Could you at least keep your posts up there? Don't post something like that and then all of a sudden take it down. No, man, have a backbone. Have some conviction in your ignorance and in your stupidity. He said in the, uh, this guy, Brad Hocka, Hockaday, he said in a Facebook post on Wednesday, he called on short tracks to end a relationship with NASCAR. He said, and I quote, it is time for short tracks around the country to pull their NASCAR sanctions for their recent actions toward America. I would not want to be affiliated with a group that doesn't respect what the American flag stands for. When did the NASCAR pull down the American flag? I thought it was the Confederate flag. Okay. A lot of people have died to make this country what it is by disrespecting the flag of this country. 
is a disgrace. A lot of people have died to make this country what it is by disrespecting the flag of this country is a disgrace. Interesting. Then removing the Confederate flag, do these dipshits even understand what the flag stands for? Uh, stands for? I have lost all respect for NASCAR. I will no longer be supporting their sanctioned bodies today. You know what I say to that there, uh, Hockaday? You know what I tell you on that one? Bye. Get the fuck out. Get your stupid ass. Get out, get out of here. Fantastic. There might be a Klan rally you can go to. There might be a, a, a Trump rally that you can go to. You'll feel right at home with those type of, uh, sentiments in your ignorance. Look, for the, and, and you know, because I read the, um, I read the comments when I see these, um, when I see these Twitter posts and these Facebook posts. So I read the comment section and everybody's talking about, oh, the lefties, the lefties, you can't say anything anymore. We just say something that they don't approve of. You get fired. You lose your job. You lose your liberty. You lose this, that, and the other. God, it's just, it's the same shit all the time. You know, when people say something stupid, or racist, or insensitive, or misogynistic, or just play dumb, and then they lose their job, and then the idiots who agree with what he's saying sit out there and they talk about how they're violating their First Amendment rights, and you should be able to say anything, and they're stifling their speech, and this is a tyrannical government. That was like four years ago, when, you know, the liberals were in the um, were in the White House, when my man Barack was in the White House, and, you know, they would be sitting there talking about, you know, PC is running amok, and you can't say anything unless we, if you do, you get fired if, you, if the left doesn't agree with you, and it's a, you know, the violation of your First Amendment rights, and I had to be telling these people over and over again. I said, no, 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 same thing here, because you see in the comment section, oh, this guy, you know, Hockaday gets fired because he had something to say that wasn't popular and the liberals didn't like, so he got fired because of that, and they're violating his First Amendment rights, and I say this all the time, no, 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 you're, <laughs> I mean, you don't have the right to say anything that you fucking want to and get away with it. You know, if you have an employer or something like that, you can't say, post, tweet, anything that you want to without some type of repercussions, good, bad, indifferent, or whatever. Now, you don't have the right to be arrested. If you say, none of these guys who posted the ignorant stuff are arrested. Last I checked. You cannot get arrested for saying what you believe, no matter how ignorant, no matter how racist, no matter how misogynistic, no matter how vile, no matter how disgusting, no matter how putrid, no matter how pathetic it is. In this country, you can basically say whatever you want. You will not get arrested. But there are consequences if you do say some things that are vile, that are ridiculous, that are disgusting, that might not formulate, that might not go with the employer that you're working for right there. That employer has the right to fire your ass if you say something stupid or you say something that will put their business or that will put their company in jeopardy. That's not violating anyone's First Amendment rights. I'm a teacher, I'm a substitute teacher for the Clark County School District. If I had a tweet where I said some really horrible, racist, disgusting, nasty things, and someone saw that and said, this is Wendell Wallace, he works for the Clark County School District. Let's kind of take this and send it over to them. And Clark County saw that, hopefully they would fire my ass. If I said something on this podcast that was racist or that was offensive, that was disgusting, that was vulgar or something in terms of hurtful or harmful, and someone records that and sends it to the Clark County School District, 
I have the right, they have the right to fire me. That's why I'm very clear. I'm very, I'm why I have to, you know, make sure I, uh, you know, I, I pay attention to what I say. Now, I'm not going to be arrested. I'm not going to be thrown in jail because my first amendment, because of my first amendment right. I'm protected to say what I want to say for the most part. But those words, those comments that I make and you make and everybody else makes, they have consequences in terms of having a job or anything else. So the, the, the difference between that I have to keep that I have to keep telling people over and over again is uh is something else. Wendell's World of Sports the Podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I guess, you know, I was listening to uh I was listening to uh the show on ESPN, one of the talking head shows, and ESPN Marty Smith was on it. And what he said about the flag and for those who support it was absolutely perfect. This is exactly what he said. But I mentioned it earlier, and it's exactly what it is now. If you tell a rebel that he has to do something or he can't do something, what's he going to do? He's going to be a rebel. And that's just in the DNA, and it isn't right, but that's how it is. And that, that flag, if there, was, if there was any honor left in those stars and bars when the Civil War ended, in 1865, if there was any honor left in that thing, it was wrung out of that flag by those who flew it over burn crosses and those who flew it over lynched black Americans and those who flew it while they were throwing tomatoes at little girls trying to go to desegregated schools. If there was any honor left in that flag, it disappeared a long time ago. If you want to see it, I can recommend a lot of great museums and we can go have that conversation, but we are not going to have it at the Talladega Super Speedway. There you go. Couldn't have said it better. Well, that was awesome, man. That was great. If you tell a rebel not to do something, he's going to be a rebel. And any honor left in the flag, it was rung, over, rung out over burned crosses, lynched black Americans, and objects being thrown at black folks trying to go to school. You want to have that argument? We can have it in the museum, but not at the Speedway. Man, that's that's great, man. And here's a guy, Marty Smith. He loves college bat. He loves college football. But he's also a fan of NASCAR. And hopefully, hopefully, those type of thoughts and feelings can permeate much more in terms of what NASCAR is all about. Hey, NASCAR, they need, everybody's looking to grow their sport. Look, everybody's looking to grow their enterprise. And you're not going to do it in terms of the way NASCAR was going. You can't really get the maximum potential out of what you can have as a sport if you're going to be out there catering to idiots catering to those who are ignorant enough about their history to think that the Confederate flag is cool. I'll tell you what, not only do I want to see the Confederate flag taken down at sporting events or at NASCAR events in the South, how about when we go down to the Southeastern Conference for football or basketball or any other sports? Let's ban the Confederate flag from a, from college football games or college basketball games or any other events on campus uh, that is associated with a university. Why would the University of Mississippi or Mississippi State or Alabama or any of those places be out there flying the Confederate flag? That's backward-ass thinking. Hopefully, as this the civil rights movement continues, that'll be the next thing that'll be taken down along with the statues of those who wanted secession because secession from this country and other racists who uh, who were back there who had statues uh, put up there. Why people like Andrew Jackson... Why, you know, we have statues of Andrew Johnson and Andrew Jackson and Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan. Why we have 
you know, monuments and statues of those assholes is beyond me. If you take a look at, at Andrew Jackson's Trail of Tears, Andrew Johnson basically calling black folks savages and, and ruling all of Lincoln's plans for reconstruction. If you take a look at someone, as, once again, like James Buchanan and Franklin Pierce, who did nothing to stop the inevitability of the Civil War because of slavery, and we're still having statues of those motherfuckers, take those racist pieces of shit down. That's the last thing, the places like in Tennessee and Roy, Roy, where was uh, Franklin Pierce from? I think he was from New Hampshire. All them places, basically, who have uh, statues of those guys, take them motherfuckers down. But uh, just to get back to NASCAR and Bubba Wallace in particular, fantastic, man. I love what you're doing. And what NASCAR did, again, for me, is the biggest symbol of a sport really being sincere about trying to make change for the better of this country. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Major League Baseball continues its path toward the bottom of relevance in the sporting world, continuing to work on a deal that will have them start playing again. The latest proposal from the league to the players. The league, while increasing the potential prorated shares from 70% to 75% to 80% in its proposals, has dropped the number of games from 82 to 76 to... 72. So when we're talking about potential prorated shares from 70 to 75% to 80%, they're talking about the amount of, the amount of salary that they're going to be getting for the games that are going to be played. So as many of the players noted, it's basically the same proposal Major League Baseball has been offering for the last month, only with different words and slightly different math. So basically the owners are talking about saying, we want, uh, the number four. So how about four minus zero? Three plus one, two plus two? Uh, six minus two, and the players are like, no, we want eight. Seven plus one, ten minus two, a hundred minus ninety-two. I don't give a fuck how you, what type of math you use. Get down to eight. And the owner said, oh, okay, I got an idea. How about ten minus six? And the owners, and the players are like, that's still four. Damn, what the hell? So, the players remain intent, man, on receiving a full prorated share of their salaries, regardless of the number of games that are going to be played. So basically, you know, it's a matter of, okay, you want to get 100% of the year's uh, money that's owed to you from your salary? Okay, so instead of playing 81 games or 75 games, we'll play 50. That way, the, the amount that we'll be paying you would, be, would equate the amount of money we would pay you at 80% if we played, instead of 48 games, 82 games, or something like that, you know, do the math. So ESPN Jeff Passan gave an update on the players' reaction to the counterproposal and their plan of action, and also why the players are not allowed or couldn't strike. Well, we should expect a rejection from the Players Association because they have made it abundantly clear 
that they're not going to accept anything short of a fully prorated salary. I just got a text from colleague Jesse Rogers, who heard from four players who said, let's just get it over with and play 50 games at this point. That's the feeling of the players right now, and it's frustration, and it's disillusionment, but they are also intractable right now, so it's going to be interesting to see when they counter, which... They're going to do by Sunday, which is when MLB has asked for a response to this, what exactly they counter with. We know it's going to be for fully prorated salaries. The question is just going to be, you know, as nice as it would be for the players to take that sort of principled stance, they're not allowed to, Kevin. As part of a collective bargaining agreement, if you have it in place still and you do not show up for work, that is an illegal strike. And the players recognize that as part of their March agreement, they agreed that the commissioner had the right to set a schedule. Now, what they can do is go and grieve. Now, they can file a grievance. They would go to spring training. They would play under grievance, you know, with, with the season starting maybe as early as July 14th, but it could start in August. And if there is a grievance setting, it would just be even uglier than it's been already and lead into 2021 with a new collective bargaining agreement uh, in the worst state we've seen since 1994. So there you have it. Players will reject the offer because they will not bend from receiving 100% of their money prorated. And some players are saying just to go ahead and accept 50 games with 100% of their prorated salary available to them. And as past explained, why not strike? Why you couldn't strike? Because it would be an illegal strike because it was collectively bargained that the commissioner had the right to set the schedule, and the only thing the players could do would file a grievance and play under a grievance, which would be a horrible look, of course, as he explained, because you have, again, you have folks out here during this situation where they don't have their jobs, they don't know how they're going to pay their bills. If you live in Nevada, experiencing the same, the same thing that I'm going through, which is the claims, the unemployment claims for Nevada has been so humongous that the unemployment department has not had the personnel to take care of it. So it's just a matter of, you know, we'll get to you sooner or later, but just keep filing the uh, weekly claims and we'll just get all your, you'll just get all your money, you know, back, uh, you know, back all in one fell swoop. So as of right now, people like me and others are, you know, trying to figure out what exactly to do because again, the state of Nevada is so backed up right now with unemployment claims that we haven't been able to get any of our unemployment money. And we're sitting here, and these guys are going to be sitting here, if you're a baseball player sitting there talking about, we're going to be moaning and pouting and whining and complaining like children who didn't get their way, even though we're still going to be making a decent amount of money, still being able to pay your bills, still being able to take care of your family. And we have people out here in this country who don't know what's going to be happening in terms of next month, whether they're going to be able to keep a roof over their head, whether they're going to be able to put food on the table, whether they're going to be able to provide for their children and their spouses. I mean, come on, man. But, you know, baseball players, that's what baseball players have gotten down to right now. And if that happens, it would really damage the relationship between the owners and the players even more heading into a time when they need an agreement, which also Jeff Passon was speaking about. And also I want to talk about here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, Wendell Wallace with you. Again, just as important, I think, baseball is falling behind in social matters uh, also, Major League Baseball was the last of the four major North American sports. The four North, I mean, baseball, football, basketball, hockey, they were the last as far as issuing any kind of statement 
or public acknowledgement or posting anything during the week's worth of protests following the murder of George Floyd. And all of the major, again, all of the major sports leagues in this country, the public expects and realizes Major League Baseball to do the least and are of the least important if you really think about it. I mean, just think about what's going down. Just remember about how the NFL owners, all the shit that they took, rightfully so, rightfully so because of what they did to Colin Kaepernick. So rightfully so. But all the shit that came down on the owners and the fact that they're still taking shit, rightfully so, because they still have not come out and said that, you know what, we're sorry, we should have done this, we should have done that, mention Kaepernick's name, we're going to give him a chance. Now the Baltimore Ravens owner, Steve Bashani, gave his support to Black Lives Matter. So for a week or so of bashing the NFL owners for not doing anything, at least Bashani had this to say. I saw the Ahmaud Arbery video seven or ten days, I believe, before George Floyd. Like most of you, I'm sure watching those videos shook you and shook me to my core. It made me sick and it made me angry. It was the most despicable thing I had ever seen. I'm lucky enough through my ownership of this wonderful franchise to have gotten close enough to these young men to see and hear their hurt. And all they're asking for right now is to be heard. And I want to ask you individually, are you willing to listen? I don't think I've grown by seeing their anger. I think I've grown by feeling their hurt. And these young men are hurting. To say stick to sports is the worst possible thing that you can feel and say. If my players, both white and black, don't speak out about this injustice to their communities, then they're considered sellouts or hypocrites. If I don't defend my players, then I'm the worst kind of hypocrite. Ask the questions, ask the uncomfortable questions, and you will come to the conclusion, I hope, that I have, that you don't feel it enough and you don't live it enough if you're not willing to say it. Black Lives Matter. Okay, I'm sure wish you could have said that after the police murdered Freddie Gray in Baltimore. But you know what? I appreciate it. I very much appreciate it. But my point is that, look, the league just donated, the NFL just donated $250 million over the next 10 years to combat racism and other racial injustices, right? The owners in the, in the NFL have been taken to the fire in terms of why they haven't been doing more. NBA owners are now starting to be, are, are starting to feel the heat on why more of the owners haven't come out and said anything. Michael Jordan donating $100 million over 10 years for racial injustice and equity causes. Uh, Mark Cuban has spoken out. But other than that, you know, the Dan Gilberts of the world and other uh, owners, they haven't said anything. So now it's starting to move toward, hey, one of these NFL, excuse me, one of these NBA owners going to come out and start saying nothing. It wasn't until Wednesday, man. Wednesday before Major League Baseball made a public statement and we still haven't heard anything from any of these owners or any of these managers or any of these general managers. Nobody. Nobody. 
And according to multiple reports, the only reason why Major League Baseball even made a public statement was because it came after a day's worth of behind-the-scenes outrage from many of the industry's black players who questioned why their sports has stayed silent so far. According to one current black player who requested anonymity for, you can read the piece on Bleacher Report, he said that Major League Baseball released something because they came under pressure from the black players. They, they were questioned by all the black players in the game, and that's why they released that statement. We were in a group chat, and some players questioned why Major League Baseball hasn't released a statement when the NFL, NHL, and NBA already has come forth. Now, I mean, you know, Major League Baseball was sitting there talking about, well, you know, we wanted to take our time and we wanted to make sure that what we said was correct and what we said was culture and what we said was right on point. And we wanted to get all of our points across. So because of that, we took our time. You know, it's almost like the, with the police. It's almost like with these corrupt police uh, precincts and officers and such, when they murder somebody, when they murder a person of color, and you hear the police chief come out there and say, well, yeah, he hasn't been arrested yet because we want to make sure, we want to get all of our evidence in, we want to be 100% kosher and make sure all our I's are dotted and our T's are crossed before we go ahead and we make this arrest. Bull fucking shit, man. Bullshit. And I'm calling baseball on this bullshit about, oh, yeah, we just, uh, uh, we, you know, we wouldn't have, you know, haste makes waste. We wanted to make sure that everything was copacetic and cool as far as what we wanted to say and get that point across and make a strong impact. Well, you did that baseball. Have you made a strong impact? Has your statement moved any of the needles? Has your impact or has your statement, you know, brought you to the forefront of what's going on? Has it helped anybody? And again, you had to be coerced to do this because of the black employees and ball players had to say something to you. Bullshit, man, what you're talking about. We, we just wanted to take our time. Now, also, there's a question. Where are the Major League Baseball players during this time? Bryce Harper hasn't made a strong statement on Instagram. I think Bryce Harper is one of these guys who wants to be the face of the league. Bryce Harper is one of these guys who likes what LeBron James is doing, and he sees other NBA players and other, these other guys are doing, these football players from overseas as far as making their own brand. You know, he's interested in becoming the face of baseball and also being that guy who's going to get a good endorsement deals and everything like that. So it didn't surprise me that someone like a Bryce Harper, who seemed like he wants to be the leader of baseball, to come out and make a strong statement on Instagram. Derek Fowler, uh, Giancarlo Stanton, Jack Flannery, Steve Dude, Sean Doolittle has also done something in terms of coming out and saying something. Derek Jeter, one of the owners of the uh, Florida Marlins, he came out and made a statement also. But you, you take a look at a guy like Aaron Judge and a Cody Bellinger, a Javi, Javier Baez, Christian Yellick, uh, my main man, Mike Trout. Where are these guys? These are four of the five best-selling jerseys in the league last year, and those guys have said nothing. If you take about, if you talk about Aaron Judge and Bellinger and Baez and Yelich, nothing. We haven't heard anything from them. Now look, I mean, you know, you can protest and you can make your mark and you can try to make your impact in different ways. You know, the, the, the movement is not waiting around for those guys to start. So they ain't holding back anything. You know, they, they aren't trying to stop anything. But as far as what baseball is concerned, it would be nice. Again, this is the home of Jackie Robinson. This is the sport of Jackie Robinson. One of the most important, influential, and impactful, not just black athletes, but athletes, period, of the uh, 20th century. And now we've got nothing but silence. Now we've got nothing but crickets. Now we've got nothing of nothing from such guys who have such prominence 
in the game of baseball like Mike Trout and Aaron Judge and Cody Bellinger and Javier Baez and Christian Yelich. And let me tell you something. If any of those guys come out the next time I do a podcast or anything and say something, I'll go ahead and I'll talk about it. I'll go ahead if they have any audio. I'll go ahead and play it. But again, as of right now, where have you been? Where have you been? Where are all the great Latin ball players at this time? Where's the Jose Altuve's and the Francisco Lindor's and the Victor Martinez and the Albert Pujols and the Miguel Cabrera's and the Manny Machado's and Javier Baez that I mentioned before, the Ronald Acuna, the Luis Severino, the David Ortiz's, the Pedro Martinez, the, you know, Manny, Manny Ramirez from back in the day. I mean, where are those guys? Where have those guys been? And you can talk about, hey, a lot of those guys don't even live in this country during the offseason. But, man, you know what? What's going on? What's happening? It's happening to their teammates. It's happening to the country that they play in. And this happens to be the United States of America, still the strongest nation in this world. How in the world can such guys such as El Tuve, who has a strong, loving community, as far as baseball is concerned, the way the fan, the fan base has embraced him, in that Houston area, we're talking about those of Latino descent who are Americans, who live in that country, who follow Altuve, just like they follow Lindor, just like they follow Cabrera, just like they follow Machado, just like they follow Severino. How in the world could those guys sit back and say nothing? It's just, that's, that's what baseball is right now. That's what baseball is all about. Maybe you could sit there and talk about, well, you know what, Wendell? I mean, you know, you're going to bring up, you know, the Latin ball players from Mexico or, excuse me, the Latin ball players not saying anything. I mean, in the NBA, I haven't heard anything from Luka Doncic. I haven't heard anything from Nikola Jokic. I haven't heard anything from any of those guys, all of those great European players. Why haven't they said anything? Fair point. But I tell you what, they might not need to do that. Why? Because you have so many... NBA basketball players of every different color who are Americans speaking out. So someone as young as Luka Doncic, who's what, 21, 22? I don't even know that he's even in the position yet to go ahead and make that type of statement. A Christoph Porzingis or a Nikola Jokic or anything like that? Okay, you know what? But still, there's enough black ball players, white ball players in the NBA to where their voices don't need to be heard right now. If you talk about the racial makeup for Major League Baseball, and you see how prominent the Latino ball players are, and you're talking about the communities that they play in of color and of their descent, why can't those guys say anything? Why can't someone who has who was beloved as David Ortiz when he came out after the Boston bombing, the marathon uh, that that situation, that act of domestic terrorism, he came out and he, he was a galvanizing force. For them, for the Bostonians to rally together and to be strong and to stay strong. Why isn't he coming out now and doing something? Why isn't he, you know, making some type of statement? Why isn't he, at least if he made a statement, why isn't it something where more people are not aware of, if that is the case? And the same thing with all these other guys. The guys who have benefited from playing and making millions upon millions of dollars to where, to maybe where, and rightfully so, they can go back to their home countries with the money that they have and have a positive influence and make a change in their countries because of the platform that baseball gives them over here in America and the millions of dollars that they make over in America. So, you know, I, I, I just, I just wish those guys would go ahead and say something. They don't need to be throwing bombs and they don't need to be doing all this other stuff, but making a statement at least, or at least coming down to the community, you know, where a lot of their fan bases or the folks who look like them or folks who are from the same descent as them 
if you're speaking about Machado or Baez or Pujols or Lindor or Altuve, it would be nice. I think it would be nice. Wendell's World is Sports the Podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, look, speaking about baseball and its lack of importance, and again, missing the opportunity, missing the chance, one of the main reasons why I don't follow the sport like I used to, one of the reasons why I have the attitude of, you know what, if baseball comes back in late July or August, who gives a fuck? If the NBA is going on strong, if the NFL is going to be starting later on that month, who gives a fuck about baseball? Who cares about those guys playing 48 games? I don't care. One of the main reasons why I don't follow the sport and why I have that attitude is because of the lack of ball of black ball players in the game. I grew up a big fan of guys like Kirby Puckett and Rod Karoom and Lyman Bostock and Dave Parker and Dave Stewart and Barry Bonds. Man, those were my guys growing up, you know? And a number of great black players today, they don't exist in the game today. They just don't. According to the numbers from last season's opening day rosters, let me see here. The black population in the game for Major League Baseball was down to 7.7%. Just 68 black players among the 882 totals. That's pathetic. That's horrible. That's embarrassing. According to a USA Today study, 11 of the 30 Major League Baseball clubs Last year, had no more than one black player on opening day rosters. And if you take a look, there were just three black ball players total on active rosters in the entire National League West. That's embarrassing. That's shameful. That's horrible. Now, the grassroots programs that Major League Baseball has employed to get kids to play baseball, if you're speaking about the RBI, the Retrieving Baseball in the Inner Cities, Dream, Ser uh, Dream Series, and Elite Development, Invitational Programs, that, that hasn't been enough. That hasn't been way too much because why are kids in the inner city? First of all, baseball now is getting to the point where it's almost exclusively becoming a white person sport, at least here in America. Now, I know if you take a look at the other countries and everything like that, especially those uh, Latin American countries, that baseball is number one, this, that, and the other. And you don't have to be particularly rich to go ahead and play them. But it's the same situation here in America with soccer, or shall we say football. The reason why that... A country with so many people compared to some of these other countries who are great in football. Why isn't America churning out better uh, uh, soccer players or football players? Despite the fact that you see plenty of you see plenty of soccer youth leagues that kids can get into, it's just perceived by black folks in the black community as being a white person sport. And if you take a look at the cost sometimes for these. Um, for these uh, opportunities to play baseball at a young age, if you're speaking about, you know, black folks who are coming from lower income communities, they're not going to have that opportunity because they're not going to have the funds. So they're going to turn to basketball or they're going to turn to football. They're going to turn to somewhere else. Even if you're speaking about some of the inner city schools in some of the bigger areas, they don't even have the funding to play football anymore. So again, that leads them to the avenue of playing basketball. And when you have the importance, and when you have the impact, and you have the visualization, and you have the somewhat connection of you're a young black kid, and you see a LeBron James, you see a James Harden, you see a, a Russell Westbrook, you see a Bradley Beal, you see a Joel Embiid, you see uh, all these guys, and Anthony Davis, you see a Kawhi Leonard, you see these guys playing basketball, that's in the inner city. You see guys who look like you, and this is somewhere that this is something that you want to do, especially when you talk about the backgrounds, something that you can relate to. My favorite basketball player, Dwayne Wade or whatever, he came from the same background as I did. 
So if I can kind of just follow the same path that he took, I have an opportunity to be an NBA basketball player. And that's where you start falling in love with the game. Baseball doesn't have that opportunity. Who in baseball is a black player going to look up to in terms of saying, I want to be that guy and have some type of connection? There is nobody. I love Mike Trout. Mike Trout is great. But how many black kids are going to be out there in the inner city talking about, you know, I'm going to pick a Mike Trout over someone like a Zion Williamson in terms of who I want to be, in terms of what direction I want to go if I want to play sports and I want to play sports seriously. Especially when you have the financial disadvantage of growing up in an area where you cannot afford to play the game of baseball at a young age and start at the youth leagues. It's easy to play basketball. You can go down to a court with a couple of your buddies and play basketball, and you can be there all day. You can go down to the park and play basketball. There's always a place, there's always a chance, there's always an opportunity when you're young to play basketball. That's not the case with baseball. So moving forward, you know, Major League Baseball had to do a better job. But one of the reasons, again, if I was a young kid growing up today, an impressionable kid, I wouldn't have anything to do with baseball. Baseball, the only reason why I'm actually even halfway following the sport right now is because of the foundation that was laid for me when I was a young kid. As again, growing up, idolizing and admiring those baseball players that I just mentioned before. Going out into the yard and trying to hit the baseball as hard as Dave Parker or Willie Stargell. Going up there imitating that same motion with the baseball bat like, like uh, Willie Stargell did. Trying to have the same batting stance as, say, as someone like a Rod Carew. I mean, that was, that was, kind of what got me interested in baseball at the time. That's why I loved baseball at that time. Now, there's nothing that really brings me to baseball. Now, there's other factors other than the fact that there's not enough black ball players to hold my attention. Another thing is that the game is just way too slow. The game has no rhythm. The game takes too long. I live in a world now where everything is instant. I've been, I've been jeopardized. I've been hurt, you know, by my, my patient level has been damaged severely. Because everything is instant. Now I just don't have the patience to wait 15, 20 seconds before a pitcher throws a ball to the plate every single time. I need action. I need it now, 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 now. And I'm not the only one. So baseball has a uh, pace of play problem that they've been trying to deal with. But they listen to too many of the, of the, of the, of the old white guys who talk about, no, 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 keep it the way it is. It's fantastic. It's great. It's wonderful. But, you know, that's, that's baseball. And then they always talk about, then they bring out Jackie Robinson to make their case about how great of an impact the sport has been on integration. And fantastic, but guess what, baseball? Integration? That happened 73 years ago. Jackie Robinson has been long gone. Jackie Robinson is a walking through that door. Larry Doby is a walking through that door. The Negro League baseball players aren't walking through that door. So you can't tell, you can't cheer, you can't pump your fist, you can't pat yourself on the back. Talking about what great strides you made for integration in 2020. We're just talking about something that happened in 1947. The 15-year-old doesn't relate to that. The 26-year-old doesn't relate to that. The 46-year-old doesn't relate to that. That's great about Jackie Robinson, American Hero, all of those type of things. But this ain't 1947 anymore. I love the history of baseball. I love what the Negro Leagues did. I love the impact that Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Frank Robinson and Don and uh, all the Don Newcomb and all those guys had. Fantastic, Ernie Banks. Let's play two. Fantastic, wonderful. Those black players making those type of of impact on the game. That type of impact on society. Great. You don't have that anymore. You can't trot out those players. You can't trot out those things every single time. They expect. 
some kid living in South Central Los Angeles or some kid living in the ghetto or living in the inner city of Dallas, Texas or Miami, Florida or Jacksonville, Mississippi or Lawrence, Kansas or anything like that. You can't expect them to be like, oh yeah, I want to play baseball because 75 years ago, Jackie Robinson integrated baseball. I guess that's a sport for me. When you have a LeBron, when you have a Zion, when you have a James Harden, when you have all of these other opportunities, when you have a Lamar Jackson, when you have a Patrick Mahomes, when you have all these other black athletes doing something else. Doesn't happen that way. Baseball doesn't happen that way. So again, getting back to an opportunity where possibly, maybe, shine a little bit more on your sport in terms of getting yourself out there. Where has Bryce Harper been? This is a situation for, for baseball where Bryce Harper doesn't need to be tweeting or need to be Instagramming. He needs to be walking. He needs to be protesting. He needs to be giving speeches. He needs to be addressing the crowd, whether it be out here in Las Vegas. Chris Bryant needs to do the same thing. Cody Bellinger needs to do the same thing in L.A. Why is Russell Westbrook out there in Compton talking about we need to stay together and we need to show unity, and Cody Bellinger does nothing? Mike Trout. Living in New Jersey, man, go to New York, go to, go to Camden, go to Patterson, go somewhere and talk about, yeah, black lives do matter to me, but I want to make a difference. You know, walk with some folks, walk with some leaders, do something. Let me know that you're alive. Yeah. <sighs> Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. It's just, you know, it's just, what was the last great, what was the, what was the last great black moment. What was the last time a major, a black major league baseball player made an impact on society? Just, just think about that. What was the last time? Um, nothing, not with Barry Bonds. I mean, the last really great baseball player you have with Barry Bonds and because he acted like a jerk, everybody, baseball included, just shitted on this guy, talked about his attitude. All right, we get it. Barry Bonds is the bad guy. We get it. We understand it. He ain't the most jovial guy in the world. He ain't the most agreeable guy in the world. Okay, the guy's an asshole. We get it. But if you're Major League Baseball, why do you keep talking about that? When I was watching the San Francisco Giants play with Barry Bonds, I mean, what year was that, 1993? One of the greatest summers that I had as far as being a sports fan is concerned. I was living in... um. I was living in the Bay Area at that time, and this was the time where Barry Bonds came over from, um, he came over from Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh ran out of money, couldn't afford him, couldn't afford Bobby Bonilla and Andy Vince Light and those guys, so Bonilla went to the Mets, signed a five-year, $25 million, $25 million contract. Barry Bonds went to the San Francisco Giants at the time when the Giants were possibly moving to St. Petersburg, so basically Barry Bonds saved the San Francisco Giant organization and I remember that team, man. I remember that team had Will Clark and Robbie Thompson and Matt Williams and Willie McGee and Bonds was in there and Bill Swift and the other pitcher who won 20 games, whose name I forgot. But that year, 1993, where they were battling with the Atlanta Braves, where Terry Pendleton was on that team and Fred McGriff was on that team. And I think, I think Chipper Jones was on that team. I think, I'm not quite sure, but I remember that race. And it was a situation that was Dusty Baker's first year as the coach and the manager of the uh, Giants. And they jumped out to a big lead. And then the basically the San Diego Padres handed the Atlanta Braves the pennant when they made that trade, that midseason trade for Fred McGriff. And um, I remember it was an awesome year. I loved it. I mean, I was I was there every single day. 
you know, following that stuff because it was like, it was great. It was great theater. And that race, that baseball, baseball was awesome. Maybe that was really, maybe unless, maybe until the Washington Nationals won the uh, World Series. I guess you could say that, uh, yeah, man, I think that uh, 1993, that was like my really, my last great year of really giving a damn about baseball. I mean, I follow it. I talk about it when I was in Arizona, when I was on KDUS. Of course, I had to talk about the Arizona Diamondbacks and such. When they beat the New York Yankees 2001 to win the World Series and all that type of thing. Great, wonderful, fantastic. But I wasn't. The, the love was, was dwindling. And now, again, it's to the point where if you guys want to come back and play, all right. If you guys don't want to come back and play, all right. I don't give a fuck. Especially, again, if you're going to waste this opportunity to come out and show me something. Hell, right now I'm more interested in NASCAR because of the impact and the things that are being done with NASCAR in terms of trying to bring people together and unity and harmony together. I'm more interested in seeing what Bubba Wallace is doing and what Jimmy Johnson is doing. Is Jimmy Johnson still racing, by the way? Or whatever. But I'm more interested in learning about NASCAR now because they've shown a commitment to really expand their sport and to do it in a harmonious, unified way it, and, in, and in an inclusive way to bring everybody in. Okay, you got my attention. Because of that, I'll pay a little bit more attention to your sport. What's baseball doing? What has baseball done to attract me? What has baseball done to get me interested again? What has baseball done to rekindle my passion that I had when I was 11, 12, 13, 15, 16-year-old? What have they done? They've done nothing. They've done nothing. So now they're not playing baseball because these guys are arguing over money. I don't hear anybody out here doing anything in this period of time in our history for baseball. It's embarrassing. It's ridiculous. And again, I'm trying to think. The last great black Major League Baseball player to make an impact, Hank Aaron. April 8, 1974, breaking Babe Ruth's record, home run record. That was 46 fucking years ago. And baseball hasn't given me shit. Baseball hasn't given me fucking nothing. In terms of what I could gravitate to or what I could learn to. If I had any kids, if I had a son, what would baseball give me? If I had a son growing up back in the, uh, you know, early 2000s, mid 2000s, what have you given me so I could show my son to be like, Hey, you know what? You need to play this sport. You can gravitate toward this guy. And instead of the NBA giving me LeBron and giving me Kobe and giving me Paul Pierce and giving me all these guys, you know, football giving me all of these great uh, football players. What has Major League Baseball done to to spark my son's, if I had a son, to spark his interest in your sport? Nothing. Nothing. And I'm quite sure there's millions upon millions of black fathers around my age group and even younger than me who are saying the same thing. Why hasn't your son, why doesn't your son love the sport as much as you did when you were a kid? Because baseball has given me nothing to fall in love with the sport. It's too damn slow. There ain't enough black ball players. And where something that needs to be done in terms of a baseball player, you know, showing its wherewithal in terms of making an impact anywhere outside of the playing field, he's done absolutely nothing. You take a look at how many baseball towns are in the United States that are left in the United States outside of Boston and St. Louis. Who else do you got? Who else do you got? Maybe Chicago with the Cubs. Maybe New York with the Yankees. But which town right now, which sports town city right now is what you would consider a baseball town? When? St. Louis is the only one that I can come up with. 
baseball, uh, you know, get your act together, man. Because people out here talking about you. I mean, the, 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 we need to. We need a deal. We, no, 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 no. Just as important as you guys making a deal and getting back on the field sometime too. Get some of your ball players, black, white, Latino. I don't care who the fuck it is. Get some of those guys out there and let us know in terms of the civil rights movement that's going on right now. Let us know sincerely that somebody in that sport really cares. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Be with us. The impact of BLM. BLM, that means Black Lives Matter. And in the current social movement of unity and equality through listening, educating, respecting, and understanding in this country is having... What, what, what type of impact is this having on its powerful, elite, well-known, highly paid, highly influential college coaches? Did you see what went down in Clemson, South Carolina the other day? What University of Clemson coach Dabo Sweeney said at a rally he participated with his team and other members of the community in an on-campus demonstration for social justice. Did you hear what he said? Did you hear what he had to say? I liked it. I liked it a lot. It's beautiful. I just appreciate everyone supporting this community today. Clemson is a special place. And we saw again why that is today. This is a historic time and a challenging time. But as I tell my team all the time, challenge is what creates change. I believe with all my heart that God stopped the world in 2020 so we would have perfect vision and clearly see the social and racial injustices and the changes that need to occur in our society. Nobody, nobody should feel less or be treated as less because of the color of their skin. God loves every single one of us the same. Black lives more than matter. Black lives significantly matter and equally matter. And for far... And for far too long, that has not been the case for the black community. And now is the time to push for equal justice and no longer tolerate police brutality or racism of any kind in this country. But as you saw today and moving forward, it has to be every, everyone's responsibility, not just some people's responsibility. It has to be everybody's responsibility to be more aware, to learn more, and to speak out against racial inequality. United we stand, divided we 
fall. I hear you, Coach. There you go. It's a historic and challenging time. Challenge brings change. That's what he tells his team. God stopped the world in 2020. I like this part right here. God stopped the world in 2020 so people could see that changes need to be made in our society. God loves everybody the same, and nobody should be treated less because of the color of their skin. Black lives matters. It more than matters. And for far too long, that has not been the case. Everyone's responsibility to be more aware and to speak out against racial equality. And of course, what he also said is that he or they, we're not going to be able to do it alone or they should be able, black folks shouldn't be able to do it alone. And he also went on to say, not publicly, but he was quoted by one of the local papers there. He said that I'm embarrassed to say that there are things on this campus I didn't really understand. I knew the basics, but not the details, but I've learned and I've listened. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Man, for white folks, that should be your slogan. Listen and learn. Listen and learn. Listen and learn. Open your ears. Open your minds. Listen and learn. Listen, listen, listen and learn. The majority of black folks ain't trying to snow you. The majority of black folks ain't bullshitting when we talk about these things. We're not feeling sorry for ourselves. We don't want anything free. We don't want anything handed to us. We're not lazy. We're not good for nothings. We want to work. We want to work hard. We will work hard. There are obstacles in our way for us not being able to achieve what we want to achieve. It's not because we're lazy. It's not because we're dumb. It's not because of any of those things. Listen and learn. Listen, listen, and learn. <laughs> so Davos, sweetie, there you go, my man. See, Davos been in some hot water. Uh, he drew criticism for not firing assistant Danny Perlman when he used a racial slur during a practice in 2017. Now, he said that he wasn't throwing it at one person. He was just saying it in general, which was weak, which was really weak. And he was also wearing Coach Sweeney of the University of Clemson, the football coach. He was also wearing a Football Matters t-shirt while posting for a photo at a South Carolina country club last Saturday during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, Not a good look, not a good optics. But you know what? I mean, people were piling on him. I mean, Jay Bills was really good with that. Dominic Foxworth was really good with that. And they were taking him to task a little bit. But But I will say this. I will say this. I always thought that Sweeney's heart was in the right place. But... It was just misguided, and it was misguided by privilege and unawareness. Not uncommon for a lot of white folks out there. Not a lot of not not uncommon for a lot of people out there who have those type of things, privilege and uh, unawareness. So, look, players, current and former, they came to a defense. So, before I start running out here and start calling Dabo Sweeney a racist or anything like that, I don't know Dabo Sweeney. I never met Dabo Sweeney. I've never had a conversation with Davos Sweeney. How do I know what the band is all about? I can only go by some quotes, and I can only go by what I see on television in the newspaper. Well, after that, I don't know. Or what I see on the internet. After that, I don't know anything about the guy. I've never heard anything about him in terms of he's a racist or a bunch of black ball players coming out and saying, well, he said this, and he told me that, and, you know, he used this racial slur on me or anything like that, or, you know, a tweet that he had a couple of years ago where it seemed like he might have said something racist. I don't know. I don't know Dabo Sweeney. So before I go out and start yelling and screaming about somebody who I've never met, who I've never talked to, don't know anything about, except based on some quotes and some photo shots and some news stories, before I start yelling and screaming that he's a racist and all this type of stuff, I want to get a little bit more information. And I want to hear 
from people who have actually been around him and hear what they have to say before I finish my formulation in terms of what type of person that he is from the outside looking in, from far away looking in. So, again, I've always thought Sweeney's heart was in the right place when I heard him talk, but over these last couple of times that he said something, it's just shown me that he was misguided. Why was he misguided? It wasn't because he was racist. It wasn't because he was trying to keep the black man down. It wasn't because of any of those things. It was because of his privilege caused him to be ignorant in those situations and unaware and tone deaf. So his current players, former players, they all came to his defense, as I mentioned before. Christian Wilkins, who played at Clemson, is now with the Miami Dolphins, won a championship with them playing those tackle um, for Clemson when they beat Alabama. He said, I don't... I see a lot of different things being said about him that I don't necessarily agree with because I know him personally. This is Wilkins speaking about Dabo Sweeney. I know his intentions and I know his heart and I know he's a good, he's a great coach and he's passionate about developing young men on and off the field. DeAndre Hopkins, what he said in a tweet about uh, Dabo Sweeney, he said the only, only uh, one thing I do know, Coach Sweeney has never been a racist or had any ill will toward any player. Best coach I've ever been around from a football perspective and personnel perspective. He helped me become a man and grow from being a kid from Central South Carolina. What more can I go on then? You ask some of his current players, black and white, who uh, are playing for him. And they say, what a great guy. They say the fact that, no, he's not a racist. Who am I then to turn around and say, he's wrong? Oh, no, 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 sorry there, DeAndre, you're wrong. No, you only stayed there for three or four years. And no, you're wrong. You had interactions with the guy and you still have interactions with the guy. No, no, no. I know him better than you do, even though I've never spoken to him, even though I don't think I've been a thousand miles close to him. I know more about Dabo Sweeney than you do. That would be ignorant of me. That would be stupid of me to say something like that. So I'm going to go on not just one or two or three comments from football players who are black. I'm going to go on the majority of football players who I've heard come out talking about Dabo Sweeney's, not just in this situation, but also in the years he's been coaching Clemson. Now, I don't think that every single player that has that Dabo Sweeney has coached has great things to say about the guy. I'm quite sure that there's some players who hate his guts or who don't like him. Maybe they had an extra grind with him. Maybe they felt that, uh, you know, he would, they were being persecuted because of Dabo Sweeney or they took it personal or something like that. I don't know, but I'm going to go with the majority. And the majority that I've heard over the years recently, what they talk about Dabo Sweeney is that he's a good man, that he's a guy that, again, is not a racist. So that's basically what I'm going to go on. So I'm glad to see him admit uh, that he was wrong. And again, for black folks, again, I mean, he made corrections to his thoughts in his feelings. Let's not, you know, chastise him or let's not sit there and talk about, well, it took you, it took you long enough or, well, it took, you know, you saying this, that, and the other, finally have you come around. No, no, no. He came around. I mean, white folks, black folks, Asian folks, men, women, this, that, and the other, especially women. I mean, how stubborn are they, right? In terms of when they're entrenched in something, they don't ever want to admit that they're wrong, right? I mean, it's a sign of strength for Dabo Sweeney and for anybody to come out and say, you know what, I, I was wrong. I was not educated in this certain field in terms of my life, in terms of society. And uh, it took me some embarrassing moments and it took some heart-to-heart talks from people to have me see the light. And because of that, and because I'm a good person, I'm going to see what I can do to grow from this. Same thing with Drew Brees. 
you know, except if Drew Brees is sincere about his apology, take it. As a community, we need to take it. As a community, we need to accept Drew Brees if he's really sincere in his apology and wanting to do better and wanting to become a better man and wanting to do more for the community, all communities, including the black communities. Come on, man. Let's not, let's not uh, sit there and, and chastise the guy and, and this, that, and the other. You know, let's see what he does and let's help him every step of the way. Same thing with Dabo Sweeney. I mean, I don't want to sit here and hear black folks talking about, well, it took you long enough, or why didn't you say that before, or you're only doing it because, you know, you're trying to get recruits and everything like that. No, don't, 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 don't do that. That's not helping the cause. That's not helping the cause. Now, now you're, now, now black folks who do that, now, now you're, you're at fault for that one. Now the onus is on you. Now you're not showing love. Now you're not showing unity. Now you're not showing education. Now you're not showing understanding when you do those type of things. Come on, man. I mean, let them in. Let them in the secular apology and say, you know what? We got a role for you. Here's your role. Let's see what you can do. Now, if he fails or if he chaffs or if he doesn't do it, then we can go back to hating his guts. But I think Dabo Sweeney is open, just like Drew Brees. I think he's open. Just like I think now, hopefully, praying millions upon millions of our white brothers and sisters, as Dr. Cornell West would say, are open to change and being better. Let's give them a chance. All right, let's let's open them and let's embrace them with open arms to say, yes, come on in. Come on in. We're open. We're open for business. We're open. You know, applications are needed. You know, apply inside. Apply online. Do whatever you need to do. But we'll take you in. And uh, if it means, you know, bettering this community, let's do it. So, Debo Sweeney, I'm glad that uh, you've seen, uh, apparently that you've seen the light. And I hope that you prove me wrong. Or I hope that you prove me right in the say, Let's trust him. The black community needs to trust Dabo, just like Drew Brees. He could be a fantastic ally for not just the black community, but for society in whole getting together and unifying and reaching the type of harmony and cohesiveness as a, as a race and as a people that we're looking for. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So I was thinking about this and I said, man, you know, college coaches. Man, there's some of the most powerful people in the coaching profession. I was just thinking about this. You know, absolutely no one in sports has a more profound impact on a community, a town, a city, a state, a region of the country more than a college football coach or a college basketball coach, if you think about it. Someone like a Dabo Sweeney or Nick Saban or Tom Izzo, John Calipari, Coach K, Gino Oriema, Urban Meyer when he was still coaching, Jim Harbaugh. Kale Sanderson, the head coach, or he was the head coach, the wrestling coach for Iowa. Bill Self, head coach for the University of Kansas. Bill Snyder, former head coach at Kansas State. What he's done for Manhattan, uh, Manhattan, Kansas in that. These coaches have so much power and so much influence, man. It's like, wow, these guys are something else. The impact that these guys can have on an athlete today or have on society today. Which direction are they going to go? Because, again, who's the most powerful coaches in the NBA right now? Uh, Greg Popovich? Uh, Doc Rivers, possibly? After what he did with the Devil Sterling deal? Maybe someone like a Rick Carlisle? Because of his coaching acumen and won a championship in his tenure with the uh, Dallas Mavericks? But who else are there? If you talk about really making an impact, you know, uh, think about a football coach. Mike Tomlin? Um, Bill Belichick, of course. Who else are there? If you if you take the, the most successful coaches, the most popular coaches, or the most well-known coaches, 
in the NFL and you put them up to the best elite coaches in college football and you're talking about the impact that they can have on their community, on their area of where they live, there's no contest. There's nobody in the NFL. There's no coaches in the NFL that can sit there and match, you know, what's going down in terms of, you know, the impact that these guys can have on their community. You take a look at these guys, nothing, nothing can equate what can, what these college coaches have in terms of their power and influence. Nick Saban could probably run for governor of Alabama and win. Back in the day, John Thompson Jr., coach at Georgetown University, he could have been the mayor of D.C. if he wanted to run while coaching the Georgetown basketball team. You're talking about someone like a Tom Izzo in, in, in Flint, Michigan. You're talking about John Calipari over there in, Mex- uh, in Lexington. You're talking about Bill Self over there in Kansas. You're talking about, you know, and once again, Bill Snyder over in Kansas State, Manhattan. These guys are unbelievable with the power that they have. Now, exactly, what are they going to do with it? How are they going to use it? What direction are they going to do? And here's the most important thing. Are the players going to call out maybe someone like a John Calipari, maybe someone like a Nick Saban, maybe someone like a Jim Harbaugh, maybe someone like a Bill Self, if, or maybe like a Coach K, if and when they feel they need to. That's going to be interesting. Now all of a sudden, how much more power or how much more... What's the word I'm looking for here? How much more leeway or sway are these coaches now going to start giving some of these players? I mean, we talk about college football coaches. These guys are control freaks. How much more control or how much less of a control than, say, someone like a Dabo Sweeney or a Nick Saban or someone like that, a Jim Harbaugh or a Ryan Day, the head coach at Ohio State, what are these guys going to do? Mac Brown over at North Carolina. What are these guys going to do? Adino Babers over at the University of Syracuse. Tom Herman over at the University of Texas. Lincoln Riley over at the University of Oklahoma. These big time major football programs, how much power are they going to relinquish? Now, I'm not saying that these guys are just going to let these guys go willy nilly and go free, but I think some of the archaic control powers that these coaches have these big-time, highly paid, highly influential, highly powerful coaches, college football coaches right now, I think some of that, some of the grip that they have on the power and the control that they have on their programs and the players that are within those programs, I think it might slip a little, but I think it might be slipping for a good way, for a good reason. I mean, you can still hold your players accountable. You can still have expectations for your players. You can still expect them to do certain things on and off the football field. But I think now in the movement, what's happening right now, I think there's some things where, you know what, these coaches are going to have to allow their player to have a little bit more of a voice, to have a little bit more of a freedom, to have a little bit more of a say-so in what's going to be happening with their football careers as long as they're as, as as long as they're playing football for that university, as long as they're playing basketball for that university, as long as they're wrestling for that university, as long as they're playing baseball for that university, as long as they're playing softball for that university. How are these coaches now going to contend with that? How are we going to let them know that, look, coach, just because you're giving up a little bit of control, that doesn't mean you're letting go of the whole shebang. You know what I'm saying? You're still in charge. You're still the HNIC, no doubt about it. Well, I don't know about it. I had you know, look up the meeting. But what I'm trying to say is that you, you're still the man. And these kids still have to report to you. 
You still have to lay down the ground rules. You still have to lay down the expectations. Not their expectations, your expectations. I get that. But within laying down those expectations, you might have to alter your expectations of what you expect from them. A new world is a coming, man. Coach, there's a new world that's a coming. How are you going to deal with it? I think guys like Nick Saban, he could be a little rough. He could be a little gruff. He could be a little rude. You hear what he did with my woman, with my gal, Maria Taylor. A little, a little, a little nasty with her a couple of years ago when they were talking about Tua and uh, Jalen Hurts at the time. A little snippety, a little rough, but he apologized. But I think Nick Saban is a guy that can adapt. And I think these guys have to adapt. Jim Harbaugh has to adapt. Nick Saban has to adapt. You know, these guys have to. Tom Herman, you have to adapt. You have to. So we'll, we'll see what happens going forward. Coach K, you're going to have to. Mickey Cronin, you're going to have to. Mike Hopkins, you're going to have to. So it'll be interesting. Jay Wright, you're going to have to. Especially now when we're talking about in the next year or two that these athletes are going to be able to use their likeness to make some money. It's a whole new world. Someone like uh, Mike Krzyzewski who's been in this game as far as coaching is forever. Someone like a Tom Izzo who's been doing this for a long time. You know, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how they deal with all of these new changes. How is Mark Few, the coach at Gonzaga, how he's going to deal with these changes? Interesting, man. It's going to be interesting. Kelvin Sampson down in Houston, how is he going to be dealing with these changes? Change, change, changes. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see. My man Patrick Ewing, America's coach, how is he going to be dealing with this? I've always thought moving forward, especially when you talk about college basketball, the impact that coaches have on an athlete has really diminished over the years. I mean, this ain't like 1970s. This ain't the 1980s. I mean, hell, this ain't the 1990s. Who was the last great basketball player to stay four years? Tim Duncan, when he was in Wake Forest? What was the last great basketball player? I'm not talking about Wayne Ellington or Tyler Hansborough or Ty Lawson or any of those guys. I'm not talking about that in terms of staying four years. Those guys stayed four years because they couldn't be lottery picks. That's the reason why Tyler Hansborough came back his senior year. That's the reason why Wayne Ellington came back his junior year. That's the reason why Ty Lawson came back and didn't go to the uh, NBA draft because they weren't lottery picks. So thank you very much, said Roy Williams. We can come back and we can win this championship. But who was the last guy where if he went to the draft, that if he would enter the draft would have been a lottery pick? And I'm talking about top two, three, four, and decided to come back and play another year. Tim Duncan not only did that after his sophomore year, he did that after his junior year. Worked out pretty well for him, didn't it? Miles Bridget for Michigan State was a guy who many people thought would have gone in the lottery if he would have uh, left, I think, after his freshman year. But we're talking about Miles Bridget's going somewhere between 9 and 13 in the lottery if he would have left his freshman year. I'm talking about guys who would have been top two or three draft picks. Someone like a Christian Leitner back in the day. Someone like a Ralph Sampson back in the day. Someone like a Patrick Ewing back in the day. One of those guys. They stayed four years. And because of that, coaches like John Thompson and coaches like Raleigh Massimino and those other types of coaches, the coaches like um, John Chaney, they had the opportunity to really work with those guys. They had the opportunity to kind of build them up in terms of when they came on campus as young, naive, immature boys to have them graduate as men with a degree in hand, by the way, and have them ready for the rigors of their professional lives in their sport, which they choose. Doesn't happen in that way in basketball. Definitely doesn't happen that way in basketball anymore. And the John Thompson, the John Thompson Jr. of Georgetown University back in the day who I fell in love with their basketball program and still am, 
Georgetown University basketball program. That's that's the love of my life. That is my favorite sport. That's something that I think about 24 or 365 days a year. Can't wait to see the season start. I'm always going to be loving my Georgetown Hoyas. My Georgetown Hoyas. Not your Georgetown Hoyas. My goddamn Georgetown Hoyas. I mean, that was built on the love and the program built by John Thompson, who got it there with Eric Floyd and John Bebe Duran and Eric Smith and, you know, Sky Shelton and Patrick Ewing and Ralph Dalton and Michael Jackson and Horace Broadnax and Reggie Williams and David Wingate and Jonathan Edwards and Allen Iverson and Victor Page and, well, Victor Page. But, you know, you know what I'm saying about, I mean, you know, Lefty Giselle with, you know, Albert King and Albert King and, and Len Bias and Herman Veal and Keith Gatling. And I mean, those are my boys, man. You know, but those guys, Len Bias stayed four years. Nowadays in the NBA, with the, with the, with the way the world is right now, that's not happening. That doesn't happen. So the impact that a coach can have on these guys is going to be diminished. It is diminished. Now players and parents, they're not interested in, you know, going to, yeah, a, a school where, you know, this coach can take my boy under his wing and teach him the right ways. And when he's done, he's going to be, be producing a man that's going to be able to hold himself well and become a great father and a great husband and a great member of society. Coaches, I'm sorry, parents and ball players who are 17, 18 years old, they're not, they're not hearing that bullshit. They don't want to hear that nonsense. They want, they want to hear, how quickly can you get me to the NBA? I want to be one and done. So how quickly can you get me there? How quickly can you raise my draft position? How well can you do in making me a lottery pick within six months? Same thing with football. I mean, I'm not interested in staying four years. How quickly can you get me to the league? How quickly can I start? How quickly can I play? And if I can't play, and if I can't start by the time I'm a sophomore, if you're football, then you're going to answer the transfer uh, transfer portal. You know, if you're in the college basketball right now, if I'm not ready to be in the NBA by my first or second year, I'm going to transfer. I'm going to go somewhere else. That's the way it is. It's not like it was back when John Cheney was coaching at Temple. It's not like back in the day when John Wooden was coaching at UCLA. Luau Cinder nowadays ain't staying four years. Bill Walton ain't staying four years. Mike Warren ain't staying four years. Gail Goodrich, Walt Hazard are not staying four years. Mark Macon for Temple is not staying four years. After the monstrous, that monstrous season that Mark Macon had back when he was a freshman back in the day, that was one of the greatest freshman seasons I think I've ever seen. You, you know, fast forward that to 2020, he ain't staying another year in college. But John Chaney, that, that, so those impacts are not like it once was. Same thing in football. I mean, you're not going to have that same impact. Now you have guys like Will Wade. Now you have guys like, you know, Sean Miller. Now you have guys like, you know, I hate to say it, you know, John Calipari, who's about, you know, let's see what I can do. I mean, they're singing the song in terms of what the parents want to hear. They're singing the song because parents want to hear those guys sing. I can get you into the league. I can get your son in the league within one year. I can make him a lottery pick within one year. Six months from now, eight months from now, one year from now, your son is going to be rich. He's going to be a millionaire. That's what these parents and these coaches want, uh, these players want to hear. So, <sighs> I sure wish that it was back in the day in terms when we had those coaches that actually gave a damn in terms of, you know what? I want to build young men, not my bank account, not my portfolio. But, you know, hey man, you know, this is the 2020s, not, uh, 
not the 1980s, but it'll be interesting again as we go to a break. It'll be interesting again to see exactly the relationship between the college athlete and these coaches. These coaches, when you're talking about football in the Power Five conferences, what's going to be happening over with uh, LSU when we're talking about, uh, oh, shit, I can't believe I got it forgot. Ed Orgeron, jeez. What's going to be happening with the relationship between you know, Ed Orgeron and his uh, um, uh, players and such? What's going to be happening over in Starksville? What's going to be happening down in Stillwater? What's going to be happening down in um, Miami? What's going to be happening down in Tallahassee. What's going to be happening in these places? What's going to be happening in College Park, Maryland? What's going to be happening in Columbus, Ohio? You know, these coaches, man, these coaches who were so powerful, these coaches who were so influential, these coaches who can still make a difference, what type of impact they're going to have? What type of statement are they going to make? Well, what are they going to show the community in terms of uniting, in terms of letting these young folks learn from their mistakes and make their mistakes and not have it be a damaging situation. What what, are, what is it going to be like moving forward now? What is it going to be like now dealing with folks who want to use their likeness for commercials? When you talk about coaches talking about no distractions, no distractions, we don't want any type of distractions. Now you're going to be having a freshman phenom come into your program and, oh, he's going to come in with a YouTube following of one million or he's going to be coming in to the uh, campus, on campus, already a hometown hero where people are going to be already biting at the bits to try to get them to advertise their car dealership or advertise their restaurant or come for an autograph signing? How is someone like a Coach K? How is someone like a Tom Izzo? How is one of those type of coaches? How is someone like, again, Nick Saban or Urban Meyer, if he ever gets back into coaching, how are those guys going to deal with that going forward when they've been such, um, uh, when they've had so much control? It'll be interesting. Can't wait to find out. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Hello, what's happening? Que pasa? What's going on? What is happening? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, NBA news. Last segment of the program, last segment of the podcast. Players are starting to have second thoughts about coming back on, what was it, July 30th, 31st, whatever. A fraction, a faction of NBA players held a conference call last week to discuss uncertainty about restarting the season in the bubble in Orlando, Florida. Kyrie Irving was up there talking about, fuck it, I ain't going back. It's all about racism and all this kind of stuff. What? The NBA and the National Basketball Players Association are agreeing on a plan that will allow players to stay home without consequences. Uh, there were about 40 to 50 players on the conference calls over the past 24 hours discussing several concerns centered on the restart in Orlando. Some of the concerns the player has, the players have are family situations, the inability to leave the Disney World Resort campus, the coronavirus pandemic, of course, the implicum, imp, impl, imp, 
English, the implications surrounding the emergence of social justice charges. Damn, man, what the hell? The implications surrounding the emergence of social justice causes in the country. Jeez, man. And those in that environment, are they, they're not allowed to, you know, they're not allowed to leave the bubble environment without a 10-day quarantine upon their return to the Disney grounds. So, you know, these players are having those situations, are asking those types of questions, the devils in the details, that type of thing. So what Adrian Wojnarowski said on SportsCenter about the level of concern for the players returning and under the proposed guideline, this is what he had to say. You know, the, the league needs the players to be on board with this to create a competitive uh, environment, a good basketball product. And you know, I think a lot in the last week, 10 days, I think it's really started to hit home with a lot of players and coaches and members of organizations of how isolating, how restrictive this bubble environment is going to be. And there are a number of players, I was told a few dozen, who have been talking. They had at least one conference call to kind of hash out some thoughts among each other. And listen, for a lot of players, there are family concerns. There are certainly concerns about COVID. Uh, there are concerns uh, about a number of issues built around having to go inside that bubble. You know, many of them for five weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, two and a half, three months, especially Kevin, you hear it more and more among the teams who know or certainly believe they're not really going there to compete to win a championship. So the league needs the cooperation of the players, cooperation of the players to play at the level of passion and desire they're used to playing to make this successful. And the players are starting to read the fine print. <laughs> What's it going to be like to living in that environment when they're growing a lot more concerned about it? You know, it's, I, I guess you would say it's above what it would be like living in prison, but it's not as nice as what maybe an NFL players deal with when they're going to training camp. I don't know. I don't know. And then you have the situation where what type of impact can they have on the social justice, the civil rights movement? That's what's going on. One player told ESPN, he said, once we start playing basketball again, the news will turn from systematic racism to who did what in the game last night. It's a crucial time for us to be able to play and blend that and impact what's happening in our communities. We are asking ourselves, where and how can we make the biggest impact? Mental health is part of the discussion too, and how we handle all of that in a bubble. I, I hear what the players are saying. That's why it was always kind of like, do these guys, remember when I was talking about, you know, this is going through, that's going through, this is going through, players are going through, owners are going through, coaches are going through. We got either Vegas, we got either Orlando, we got either this. Okay, we just discovered we're going to stay with Orlando and blah, blah, blah. And there's 22 teams, it's going to be 30 teams, it's going to be 16 teams. Are we going to have the regular season? All of this stuff that was going down. And I was like, has anybody really stopped and thought about you know, the situation that you're going to be in. Let's, let's put it this way. When you go on vacation, no matter, I mean, maybe you can take an exotic vacation over to like, you know, Hawaii or maybe Cabo or, you know, somewhere in a resort. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Your honeymoon, going with your woman, going with your fella, going with your side chick, going with your side piece, you know, whatever. What is the longest you think that you could stay away from home, from your regular routine? If you had to, and this is with your woman, this is with your fella, this is with your guy, this is with your fuck buddy. I mean, how long 
do you think that you can stay before you're kind of like, all right, this is kind of like starting to miss home or starting to miss the routine, this, that, and the other. I mean, think about what these guys have to go through. I mean, if you're going to win an NBA championship, just talking about what? Staying in a situation, in an environment like this for what, a couple of months? I mean, when I go off and I go up north for a week to work for Clark Kelly, and I'm up there and I get up there on a Monday, I mean, by Wednesday and Thursday, I'm like, all right, man, I'm ready to go fucking home. I am ready to get the fuck out of here. And I drive all over town. I try to do everything that I can to keep myself occupied once school is over. But uh, I'm just ready to go home. I miss my house. I miss my routine. I miss my everything. I miss my surroundings. I miss my environment. I miss my town home. I miss it all. So I'm just kind of thinking to myself, man, just thinking about, like, say someone like, I mean, all these guys are millionaires. And all these guys are used to perks and everything in terms of the way they live and their lifestyle. That's going to be put on hold for months if you're going to be thinking about winning the championship and you're going to be talking about testing and some other things i mean i i think eventually these guys are going to go ahead and they're going to go and play but people are talking about you know you have discussions about well you know the nba champion they should have an asterisk by it fuck no man the team who wins this championship i think is going to be one of the most incredible things that they can go through I mean, we know how much NBA playoff basketball on the regular is how much of a grind that it is. And, you know, by the time the NBA final is over, the champions, and even the runner-ups, I mean, they're just like physically and mentally spent of what they have to go through. I think that winning a championship this season under these conditions, after the layoff that they had, I think this is going to be more daunting. I think it's going to be more impressive than if these guys had just continued to play the way that they're playing with a regular season and just have the regular regular season format and then play off of an NBA championship. I think what they're doing now is much more difficult and should be given much more respect. First of all, nobody who's going to be playing for these championships are going to be having home court advantage. So that's going to be the main number one thing. And, you know, people talk about, well, it's Orlando, it's a suite, you have the, it still ain't home. And a suite for you and me or anybody else who's not making, I don't know, seven, eight figures a year. I mean, that ain't going to be acceptable. If you're talking about millionaires who have been living the type of lifestyle in terms of their homes, in terms of their routines, in terms of everything like that, going to some resort in Orlando, I don't care how wonderful the room is. I don't care how great the food service is. I don't care how awesome the amenities are. It ain't what they're used to. It ain't what these super-duper millionaires playing basketball is not what they're used to. They don't have the continuation. They don't have the continuity of... You know, you know, their the the practice, their practice courts, uh, you know, going into the their facilities and everything. They, they just don't have that. Even when they're on the road, certain hotels that they're going to be staying in, certain restaurants they go to, certain haberdashers that they go to to get their swag, certain places that they might go to after the contest, after the game, after a playoff game, they don't have that. That routine is done. That routine is broken. So it's it's going to be interesting. Because I think it's just going to be a matter of, look, I mean, everybody has a reason to play in the NBA, to have the NBA resume this season. If you're LeBron, do you want to go back and play? Fuck yeah, you want to go back and play because I'm on the precipice of winning possibly a fourth NBA championship, which puts me only two behind MJ. 
So hell yeah, I want to go back and I want to try and play it. I want to try to get this done. If you're Anthony Davis, I haven't won an NBA champion yet, uh, championship yet. So yeah, I want to go back and I want to get this done. If you're Paul George, yeah, I want to have a chance to go and play for an NBA Finals. If you're the Boston Celtics, the team with uh, the players on the Boston Celtics, yeah, you want to come back and you want to try it. If you're the Milwaukee Bucks and Giannis Antetokounmpo, hell fucking yeah. If you're the Milwaukee organization, hell yeah, you want to come back and try to play for a championship because if you do win a championship, what does that mean? How much of that, how much of that improves your chances of Giannis signing that long-term deal and staying in the Milwaukee Bucks for another four or five years to continue the potential dynasty that you could have? Hell yeah. So if you're those teams, you'll say, I'll come back and I'll, you know, I'll deal with what I have to deal with. I don't know. Maybe because they're talking about family and friends and everything can't come in until after the first round or something like that, man. Who knows? Maybe they'll finagle. Maybe they'll kind of, you know, sneak out. Maybe they'll do, you know, a Paul Horning and Max McGee when they were with the Green Bay Packers, how they would break curfew and do your thing and do their thing. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm quite sure the longer it goes on, I'm quite sure they'll find some way to survive. And if it means bending the rules a little bit, well, then fuck it, they'll take that chance. If they get caught, what's going to happen? If LeBron James get caught, gets caught off campus, what they're going to do? Suspend him? Kick him out? Of course not. Now, of course, with cell phones, that would be a hell of a story. But what I'm saying is if, if you know, if the NBA players or whatever want to, you know, do their thing and do some other things, you know, who knows, man? Who knows? Who knows what's going to be happening? But my question is also going to be, as the season, if the season resumes and we start playing these games, I mean, we're going to be talking about teams like Memphis teams, like Washington teams, like, say, for instance, Phoenix, who are just kind of like on the, you know, they're on the outskirts and they really don't have a chance in terms of winning the championship. How much are they going to be giving in terms of, look, man, let's just hurry up and get the fuck out of here. We ain't going to win a championship. We've been here for three weeks. I'm ready to get the fuck home. I'm ready to get the fuck out of here. Let's just hurry up and get done. So even if you're in the playoffs, and for instance, I don't know, I mean, the, the Grizzlies or maybe the Miami Heat or somebody, you know, they're down 3-0 in the series or they're down 3-1 in the series. How many of those players who are down 3-1 are just going to say, you know what, man, fuck it. Let's just lose and get the fuck out of here. I'm done. I mean, we ain't going to win this series anyway. They're too much. Let's just hurry up and get the hell out of here. And maybe not tank it, but just not give the effort that they would normally give if they were on a regular routine. Who's those, man? Who's going to know? So it'll be interesting to see moving forward uh, how that happens. How that is going to happen. So, yeah, man. So that's something to look forward to. Definitely something to look forward to. All right. I'm done. I'm finished. Kaput. I am out of here. I want to thank everybody for listening to the podcast. Coming up on June 19th, I'm going to have a special. One of my heroes passed away in 1986. Len Bias. I will tell you right now. From a completely biased position, Len Bias was going to be better than Michael Jordan. He already was in college. He was going to be better in the pros. That's my story. That's my belief. That's my opinion. And I'm sticking fucking to it. <laughs> so I'll talk about that on my next podcast. Unless I bring something up. Unless I put something down in the next couple of days. So I want to thank you very much again for listening to the podcast. Um, and I guess, you know, I always give you this, hey, you know, be safe, be cool, be good to each other, love one another, this, that, and the other. Today, to end the podcast, I'm going to have Sam Cook take us out. Because Sam, when he was 
doing this thing at the Harlem uh, at the uh, at the at the Harlem Club down in Miami in the recording that was recorded in 1963, but they didn't release until the mid 1980s because the folks who were in charge of the music industry at that time was Sam Cooke. They figured that what he was doing in terms of the performance that he gave at the Harlem Square nightclub, that was too black, that was too bluesy, that was too uh, R&B, that was too soulful to uh, put out at the time. So it had to wait 22 years before RCA finally decided to uh, put it out. But um, I'm going to let Sam Cooke, the legendary Sam Cooke, the awesome Sam Cooke, kind of give y'all, kind of give you the formula of what to do to be well be happy, be safe. It's all about, you know, it's all about keeping on having, keep on having that party. Keep on having that party. If you love, with your loved one somewhere, keep on having that party. So I'll let Sam take it out. I'll let Sam do what he needs to do. Go ahead, Sam. I'll see y'all later. Let's go!